This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Ah, oh, sad day. Uh, sad day. What else can you say? San Bernardino. 14 people killed. 17 injured. And, you know, mass shooting. This one has some different kind of uh, signs, different hallmarks. Double shooter. Um, anyway, tragic. So... What do you say about the same old tragic, horrible, sad story? Again, prayers go out to the families. Somehow, this is, I have a sense, going to become more and more of our life. It is. Like a random... We're watching the evidence of that. So, the, I guess the, the part of this that's a little different is there's a female involved. Female involved and double shooter. I mean, most of the mass shooting, the last double shooting, double shooter mass shooting was um, the school in Colorado. Yes. I mean, that's 20-something years ago. Yeah, it's usually an individual. This was, was it three people? I think it was two. There was was two in the car, and then there's a third one they've detained. Oh, I did not know that. That happened yesterday, but nothing, I haven't read anything more to, By the way, was was it husband and wife? That's, and what, that's what they're saying now. With a six-month-old child at the grandma's. Yeah. So very strange. A few hallmarks possibly of... And then at the end, there wasn't a, a suicide. They, there was a shootout. There was a shootout, and they died. Now they're like, is that... It wasn't suicide by cop. It was... They're, you know, they were actively trying to get away. Mm. So I don't... It was just kind of a... And, and again, weird. the day the information's still coming in. They've got a lot to figure out, but... Just tragic. And President Obama made a statement. Again, another mass shooting. Prayers might not be enough. We need to make some legislation. Of course, the GOP, our Republicans, worried about gun control, don't start controlling guns. He made an interesting comment, President Obama did, about the fact that we have a no-fly list, and you can be on the no-fly list but still go get a gun. Yes. And maybe that's a loophole that needs to be closed. In fact, Paul Ryan just talked about that on MSNBC. But there's other loop. There's other things that need to be fixed. Mental health, obviously. Terrorism now is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Not that they know. Not that they believe this was terrorist, or they're trying to get the information. And um, but it's complicated. And our gun laws are a little looser here than other countries. President Obama keeps bringing that up. Yeah, and then then it comes to the. The reason they're looser is because of the amendment in the Constitution. Right. And then it comes to the – I've heard people discussing and some things written, is that something that needs to be revisited? Yeah. The Constitution is built so that we can make adjustments if necessary. Well, and especially – I mean, you know, you don't need military-style weaponry to go deer hunting. That's the argument. Except there's a right to bear arms. And if you want to bear a military-style weapon, many would argue you should have that right. And in the past, they've tried to draw a line 
here's where a gun is, you know, within those parameters, and here's where it's outside. We don't need these weapons. These ones you can't have, and that's caused a lot of problems and a lot of disagreement as to what's right and what's wrong. That's what they keep saying. We just need common sense. So common sense would be, in the the Democrats' minds, you don't need to have automatic weapons with large – cartridges that can hold a lot of ammo and can automatically dump a lot of weapons. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bullets. bullets. So that debate, I have a feeling, is going to continue Yeah, for a very long time. Which will lead to not much getting done right? and this problem continuing. Well, and two, simultaneously, couldn't we also just address all of the other issues? Mental health registries and however you do that, that's going to impinge and impede on people. Uh, and also... You know, if your name's on a watch list, it ought to be integrated into some database. That one seems ridiculous. You, you, we've the government has flagged you and said you're somehow a danger. You should not be in an airplane. You should not fly. But yeah, yeah. go get a gun. Except there are there are some people that are falsely tagged yes. in that, and then you know they can't travel very easily. So it's almost like again, we can hope the government just takes care of all of this, but at some point too. To what degree? This kind of gets down to the the Ted Cruz debate that's going on with Rubio. Is it security that we should worry more about or rights? What's the debate? I mean, what's the deal? So anyway, I think what we're seeing is now, again, more complicated issues that we're facing. But we have the brains to be able to fix it. We also have to actually just legi- – not just legislate our way out of this, but maybe we also need to start – you know, actually using the laws and arresting people for doing things that are illegal. You know, if if people are obtaining guns illegally, let's make sure that we're arrested, that there are arrests being made, that we are using the laws that are right. already on the books. And just for the uh, record, they've already checked these guns that were used. There were rifles and handguns. They were all purchased legally. Mm. So there you go. How do you how do you fix something when they? Did it according to whatever yeah, rules they followed are set. the law. <laughs> yes, that's that. And again, if this ever turned into a terrorist act, then that changes things because two, guns are still an issue. You've got to deal with all the guns. And now, what do you do when there starts to be kind of these rogue, lone wolf type of incidents? I mean, it, this could just be the future. You know, I hope not. Ireland got pretty used to consistent terroristic. Bombings and I mean, I you hope not, but if so, in fact, we're going to have somebody on to talk about not today, but to talk about you know how you handle how do you talk to your kids about all this stuff? It's a big, big deal. In fact, later today, in actually just a few moments, Dr. Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Lawson will be joining us. They're going to be talking about ethical use of drones. And society, um, there's, there are two professors from University of Utah, Department of Communications there, and they're going to be um, – they actually have a class, a curriculum to study social and ethical use of drones, which is important because Amazon's like, let's do this drone thing. But and then so uh, Google. Google's all over it, it. I mean, and it makes sense. And like you brought up a really good point about if we could like fly a drone to drop meds you know, to somebody in Alaska – I've seen examples say just you know middle of America Kansas. You, know, you have a town. Sense. You have a town that's like ten fifteen miles away from the nearest hospital. Yeah, and you can just send a delivery of some medicine to someone's house that maybe they're homebound. Right, right. And they just drop it in the driveway and leave, and then the person can retrieve it. 
But now then, you know, you can see the day that a, a, an illegal drug dealer would love a drone. <laughs> right. He could and just they're, and they're, they're, play they're video games. That, uh, they're having some incidents of that across the U.S.-Mexico that's border. Right, that's right. And also into prisons. And into prisons, as we've read. <laughs> And so, so there's there's all sorts of issues along with the the drones, how to use them, and what's the ethical can you, way. Could you have imagined, I don't know, 30 years ago when you were playing with your first little remote control car that it would have ever turned into this? No. The drones now. That would have been awesome. Ah. My parents, the first radio control car, it was a swing and a miss. Yeah, exactly. My friend and I, my friend got the Lobo 2. Ooh. Which was awesome. Well, that was a good one. Independent suspension, ah, had yeah. all this cool stuff. I got the Chipmunk. <laughs> Just the name alone tells you everything the you need to know about the car. <laughs> those were those were the days, though, when you actually when you would turn the wheel on the remote control. If it actually moved your wheels, you felt really good. Yeah, if if you didn't turn by going by putting it in reverse. Yeah, oh, so, that, yeah that, that's how they backwards. Yeah. They first it, you'd go forward, and then you would turn when you hit yeah, it reverse. reverse. And you're like that's yeah. come on, I want to you know so confusing. Just let me go left and right. Hey, ridiculous. Uh, just if anyone was keeping score. Um, uh, our building is very secure. We this a, building, this yes. building that we work in, uh, very secure building. I apparently left my phone at home. Came in, got in the building, used my card, got in, went to my office. Oh, I must have left my phone in the car. Left my card, got my keys, went to my car. Phone wasn't there. Locked out of the building. Couldn't get in the building. Oh, I'll just call Terry. Couldn't call Terry. Wait, no phone. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll just wait for somebody. Oh, I've got a show to do. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I better just drive to the front of the building. Drove around to the front of the building. Waited at the front of the building. Security was there, but was helping someone else that had gotten there right before me. Very secure building. Nobody's getting in here. Nobody. Not even the talk show host. Um, phones, man. I'm afraid. What happens when we become so dependent on drones? Then we're in big trouble. Right. Hey, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what else is going on around the world. Thanks, Matt. Syed Rizwan Farouk, one of the suspected attackers of the San Bernardino, California shooting that left 14 people dead, 17 people injured, traveled to Saudi Arabia in the spring and returned with a wife believed to be Tashfin Malik, according to co-workers. Patrick Bakari, a co-worker, said Farouk was away for about a month. When he returned, Bakari had learned on Facebook or learned that Farouk had married, and the woman he described as a pharmacist arrived shortly thereafter. The couple had a baby later this year, he said. Uh, according to reports, the co-workers threw a baby shower for the couple in the last few months. The co-workers were the people at the party at the that party. he shot. They threw a baby shower for him recently. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't... I, Bakari, who suffered minor wounds from shrapnel, said he had been sitting at the same table as Farouk at the office party on Wednesday when his co-worker suddenly disappeared. He added Farouk showed no signs of unusual behavior. Police Chief Gerard Bergun said that uh, said that based on the armor and level of preparation, there had to be some degree of planning in this. Authorities have yet to determine a motive, and police have not ruled out terrorism. Hmm. This is how the BBC led off their 5.30 p.m. news on Wednesday. Just another day in the United States of America. Another day of gunfire, panic, and fear. This time in the city of San Bernardino in California, when a civic building was apparently under attack. Just another day. <laughs> That's how he let off his news. There wow. have been seven mass shootings since June, which is one every four weeks. Mm. If you like to keep track. 
the couple, uh, Farouk and Malik, believed to have killed 14 people and 17 injured and at the office party on Wednesday, had been married two years, had a six-month-old daughter. A family representative told the LA Times on Wednesday morning, the couple dropped their infant daughter off at Farouk's mother's house in, in, in uh, Redlands claiming they had a doctor's appointment. When the grandmother heard of the shooting, she started calling their cell phones, worried that they were somehow caught up in all this. Uh, Farouk also, or the, uh, the family member also provided more information he, on Farouk. They said his parents came to America from Southeast Asia. He was born in Illinois. Uh, they did not provide any clues as to why uh, Farouk and Malik, who were uh, both killed in the shootout with police later on in the day, would allegedly commit mass murder and leave their daughter orphaned. Mm. In other news, a critical report on the Secret Service to be released publicly today, part of a bipartisan congressional investigation, describes the once elite force as an agency in crisis that has failed to fix any of the deeply ingrained problems exposed last year amid a string of humiliating security lapses. The, this is all from the Washington Post. Budget cutbacks, low morale, leadership changes are given as reasons for the failures. The report details 143 security breaches since uh, in the last decade, including a man masquerading as a member of Congress who walked into a secure backstage area without being properly screened and spoke with President Obama. Oh, wow. Just walked right up and talked to the president. Uh, yes, I'm a member of Congress. Okay, go right on ahead. Oh, thank you, sir. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, out this morning, a uh, South African appeals court overturned an earlier manslaughter verdict and found Oscar Pistorius guilty on murder on Thursday for the uh, mm. the murder of his girlfriend. Yeah, he's so he's gonna he's back in. I so guess. he's going back into court to, to figure that out. British jet fighters took off from a UK airbase in Cyprus, carried out airstrikes in Syria just after just hours after lawmakers voted in favor of launching airstrikes against ISIS. So British. Jet fighters are now flying around mm. with the, everyone else who's flying through that area. Uh, Swiss authorities carried out a new round of pre-dawn arrests today in, in connection to the U.S.-led investigation into corruption in FIFA. This time, charges were particularly aimed at South and Central American soccer officials. Oh, boy. So FIFA continues to uh, roll out also. <laughs> it was the same hotel, too. Was it really? <laughs> so apparently, they all stay at one hotel in Switzerland, right. and they just keep kicking anytime, the doors in. Anytime, I mean, criminals know you got to mix up your game a bit. You should have stayed at a different hotel. They never would have known. Is there one hotel there must in be, Zurich? There's I mean. one really nice <laughs> hotel in Zurich. Interesting stuff, folks. Um, man, what a, what a crazy day, huh? Uh, Pistorius is going back to jail, it looks like, or at least going to be uh, – his charges are going to be changed. And uh, the the tragedy in in San Bernardino City. That's um, again, this is life. This is uh, this is what we're dealing with now. And uh, now we got to figure out how to deal with it. We'll be getting uh, some some good experts to help us cope through that um, uh, later on other days in the show. But today we're going to be talking drones, folks, and uh, drone course. How about taking a class on the ethical use of drones? It's not just something you buy at a Radio Shack anymore, folks. You attach a you attach a camera to it. You change the entire game. In a minute, we'll be speaking with two uh, University of Utah professors who are going to walk us through some of the ethical issues we need to pay attention to. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, technology is changing a lot of things in our lives. Uh, if you think about it, from remote control cars, do you remember back in the day when, you know, your car could either go forward or backward or you could 
you know, the, the cars that would run into the wall and then automatically change direction and then eventually find a straight path. Well, you know, now we have drones. We have uh, even in the UK, there was just a story out recently about um, there's a there's a, a, a race that they have regularly there um, to to design electric cars. Right. All electric race cars, basically. Um, but now what they want to do is actually ditch the drivers and uh, they want to have all electric cars that are fully autonomous and and the cars can then, I guess, race against each other. The new series is going to be called Robo Race, and it will run alongside the Formula E Race series, which began last year, and sees driverless cars competing against each other independently at speeds of up to 150 miles an hour. So imagine the day that you can now go watch like a NASCAR race with driverless cars, electric cars that are basically robots racing robots. Hmm, times they are a-changing. Now... With that, though, uh, you know, we're eventually going to have roads. We're eventually going to have streets that are all driverless or cars that are driverless. And you're just going to get in your car and drive to work. Won't that be great? Do you sense when that happens we're going to need some laws? We've got to have some rules with some of this technology and the advancements we're going through. So we, we, we found the exact same problem when it comes to drones and uh, the ethical use of drones in society um, you know, recreational drones have, have quickly become the latest trend. In fact, retailers estimate that one million drones. Now, a drone is basically a flying machine. In it could probably be an airplane or a helicopter. Um, but there's about one million drones that'll be sold for Christmas this season. And with so many drones filling the air, and with inexperienced pilots. The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has plans to release rules and regulations by Christmas. So now in the stocking of your child, you're going you're gonna to give them the drone, but you're also going to give them the FAA rules and regulations. Uh, today, joining us from the University of Utah, we have Dr. Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Lawson, who created Drones in Society, a curriculum at the University of Utah that aims to help students explore the ways that drones are being imagined and made real the course also discusses the moral, ethical, and legal issues brought on by drones technology, and they're on the phone with us live. Uh, Dr. Avery Holton, Dr. Sean Lawson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You bet. Great to have you. I mean, this, to me, is such an interesting topic. In fact, last week we did a story about a woman that has to pay a $600 fine because a man was flying a drone, I guess, over her driveway, and it was coming at her. I don't know if you read the news report. And she was terrified that she didn't know it was being controlled by somebody. She thought it was like an alien, whatever. And she threw a rock at it and destroyed his drone. <laughs> she has some pretty good aim, right? She's got some really good aim. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, I guess as we get into this, the drones, you know, a million are going to be sold this year. And I don't even think most of us even know all of the ethical issues or some of the ethical issues that come up when we're thinking of having a drone or a drone with a camera in our neighborhood. Talk to us about that. Dr. Avery, how did you get into this research, and, and why drones, of all things, that we need a class on? You know, I, I think that you made um, a really good point earlier, is that now drones, um, just like the autonomous cars that you were, you were mentioning, are becoming more ubiquitous, so we're seeing them everywhere. Um, gas stations, toy stores, but we're also seeing them covered in the media in different ways. So in the past, when we thought about drones, we thought about sort of these... Um, airstrike combat vehicles, and mm-hmm. now we're seeing them more as, as toys. And the problem 
that we ran up against or that, that we started to see to develop this course was nobody was really thinking about them in constructive ways. Um, it was all uh, kind of doomsday scenarios or surveillance issues. So we wanted to, to dive a little bit deeper and explore the ethical issues, explore the legal issues, but also kind of put the power in the hands of the students and, and let them tell us you know, the different ways that these could be used in a positive manner. That way we weren't just thinking about them as sort of seek and destroy right. or sort of the fly of your driveway and, and throw a rock up at <laughs> That's it. That's right. And yeah, and yeah, because you can already see the hoodlums are going to be out there, you know, creating havoc with the the seniors of the world, <laughs> flying drones around them. Um, talk to us, Dr. Lawson, about the curriculum and because in, in the class, don't you also have the, the, the students build a drone? Yeah, we do. Um, so really what our goal was in the class is to really try to provide a, a unique um, sort of comprehensive um, look at drones. So um, it was actually a series of two courses over two semesters, so it was a year-long curriculum. And in the first semester, we really focused in on the legal, ethical, social issues uh, related both to military use of drones, so yeah. ethics, um, efficacy, do these things even work, or is it legal to use them, um, these sort of issues, um, use of drones by law enforcement, you know, those surveillance issues that Professor Holton mentioned, um, and then also the domestic issues around regulations, uh, FAA, which you mentioned earlier, safety issues, privacy issues. So we really did like a deep dive on that in the first semester. Hmm. Um, and during that semester, we, we started the students off with literally just some like toy-grade drones that you could buy from Amazon. Um, each student got a drone. Um, they're pretty indestructible, and, uh, you know, they, they started learning to fly them around and get a sense for, um, you know, how these, quad, these little quadcopters work. And um, part of what all of them learned was um, they're actually not as easy to fly as uh, they look uh. on TV or in all the marketing materials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But that's an important thing for them to learn, right? Is, right. Uh, a lot of people have the misconception that you can just go out and buy one of these things. They look like a toy. And in many in many respects they are, and then you can you know you can just start flying and be an expert at it right away, and that's when they get themselves into trouble. Um, so we started them off with those toys, and then then in the spring uh, we shifted gears, and what we did is we really uh, looked in detail at ongoing innovations, and each student um, worked to do an innovation profile of a particular individual or a company who is doing something innovative with drones, hmm. and they wrote up a report about that and put it on our website. And then what they also did is they each worked in teams of five to build a larger uh, quadcopter from a kit and, uh, and then to imagine an innovative use for quadcopters and sort of put together a mock uh, funding proposal um, that uh, lays out you know, their idea yeah. for some beneficial social use for this technology. Interesting. So it almost, in a way, it sounds like a, almost like a marketing class or a, a, a PR or an advertising approach where you're kind of I mean you're innovating but you're also you're also trying to figure out solutions. Right, right. What we yeah, we really wanted to provide sort of like a three hundred and sixty degree, you know, view of what's going on yeah. with technology. In various different realms of society, the problems we're seeing with the technology, um, the other innovative and positive things that other that people are doing with the technology give them a little bit of hands-on experience so they, they know something about like how the technology works like literally at the nuts and bolts level, and then also allow them to imagine and, and begin to articulate an argument for their own use of the hmm. technology. You know? Yeah. 
Dr. Dr. Holton, why uh, I have a master's degree in communications, actually a bachelor's from the U in communications, but I'm trying to figure out how the curriculum about drones, the ethical and safe use of drones, how is this in a communications field? I think it's a really good question. So we started to see sort of a proliferation of drone use by um, independent media. So folks who might be freelance journalists right. or even identify that way to, to get some really cool footage, let's say, of traffic zones or avalanches. Um, and some of those became problematic. You know, coverage of forest fires, for example, and getting in the way of uh, emergency responders. But from a communication perspective, you know, it's, it's interesting to research that and see uh, the motivations behind those uses. But from a broader perspective, when we attach a camera to anything, it suddenly becomes a media device. Oh, that's true, huh? Uh, so we can stream out video, we can share video on YouTube, um, we can create vines and GIFs and all those sorts of things. So we wanted to make sure that, one, students were armed with uh, constructive thought and, and deeper thought about those legal, moral, ethical issues if they start using these devices for communication. But two, we were really interested in, in exactly what your question was from the student's perspective is, well, how can these really be used mm. for communication? Do yeah. you imagine them being used as communication devices, or do you imagine them as something beyond it? And what we got was exactly what I think we expected was a really good mix of student ideas in terms of whether or not these should be media devices and then how else they might be used. And just to give you an example of what students came up with yeah. when they built these uh, the drones that Dr. Lawson was talking about, we had students come up with drones that would fly in grids to kill mosquitoes, to do mosquito control. Yeah. We had um, sort of agricultural devices for cattle GPS tracking, um, spraying crops, avalanche control, and even a few that, that just worked on uh, new forms of energy, so using the shake and rattle, so to speak, of the drone to create more battery life because part of the problem right now is most drones, the batteries go out in 6 to 12 minutes, so you don't have a lot of flight time. Right. But these students, you know, along the way, basically informed us and, and talked to us about some of their worries and concerns, and most of them weren't necessarily concerned with the surveillance aspect. They were more concerned with whether or not the media has a right to fly these devices and where they have a right to fly them. And mainly the media. I mean, not even just the perverted neighbor that just is going to go look in your windows, but th- their concern was the media. Right, and, and they ask good questions, right? So whether or not uh, the media could use these, you know, how far away they should operate, hmm. what the legalities were, and then what kind of footage could and could not be used. And I think we had a, a really uh, good sense of that yesterday with the unfortunate shooting yeah. in California. We saw um, not, not a, necessarily a drone-based uh, footage, but some helicopter-based footage that showed the shootout. And in those cases, you know, the, the helicopter pilot and reporter were putting themselves in danger um, they're trying to fly, you know, high enough to not uh, not uh, interfere with law enforcement. But drones in that situation could be used not only for law enforcement to sort of fly in and, and look at the vehicle um, where the suspects were, but also for media to be at a safer distance, uh, to be providing that sort of footage, and to have footage that uh, could either be streamed, such as was the case yesterday, or that could be edited on maybe a, a five or ten second delay. Wow, um, I mean, really, stuff that we don't even we don't even really conceptualize. Is that what you saw, Doctor Lawson? Too just all of, I mean, the potential interesting solutions that come from the class. To me, that's fantastic. I mean, that that's showing you maybe that the innovation of drones could could change a lot of our our lives um, for the good. 
but also it seems like it's it's creating a lot of questions too, maybe more questions than than even answers. Right, and and so part of what we were really trying to to do with the class is based on the the belief uh, that you know you're going to get better, more responsible innovations um, if. Uh, the students who are, are thinking about these innovations have had some education about what the bigger issues are mm-hmm. in terms of surveillance and ethics and privacy and safety um, and all of these kinds of issues that they're going to understand um, the sort of you know ethical, legal, political landscape, social landscape in which they're attempting to innovate with this technology. And that's going to make them more responsible, but we think probably more effective innovators as well, right? Because they're not going to be surprised when they create a technology, put it out in the world, and then right. have a huge backlash. And they're, and they're thinking to themselves, well, why are people backlashing against this technology? Yeah, no, um, exactly. Um, and then, but then the other thing is, you know, even if, even if all of these students don't go on to be drone innovators, which probably, you know, most of them probably won't. They have other career paths in life. Um, they will be more informed citizens about drones, the issues around drones, they will have had some hands-on experience with the actual technology. Um, so we think, you know, everybody is better served, both the, the innovators and citizens and potential future policymakers, um, if, you know, all, all parties involved can have a little bit of experience with all sides of the issue, yeah. from the hands-on innovation side to the sort of policy, social, legal, et cetera, um, side of these issues. Um, that will have a better public policy discourse, you know, that sort of avoids the, the hype um, and also the, the fear that comes oh. with a new technology. Yeah. And if you go too far in either direction, you know, it's really not a productive discussion. And so we were really hoping to, you know, sort of get to that. And I think we did. We had some amazing discussions with these students, incredibly bright. Um, you know, they really cared about these legal and ethical and social issues and also really cared about the innovation and, um, you know, they, they worked hard to um, integrate all of that knowledge yeah. uh, into what they were doing. Powerful. Let, let's do this, guys. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Uh, Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Lawson from the University of Utah Department of Communication. They're helping us uh, understand a course that they put together on the ethics and safety um, and ethical use of drones. But uh, they're also teaching us about the innovative concepts behind drone use and uh, maybe trying to inform us so that we can be informed instead of just afraid of new technology. Let's actually, uh, let's just educate ourselves, find out more about it. Stick with us. We'll be back. Continue the discussion about ethical use of drones, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever been to the park and seen someone flying a drone? Or have you ever been to the White House and had a drone land on the front lawn? (laughs) And then Secret Service just freaks out. We're talking about uh, ethical use of drones, and who better to do it than two professors that wrote the curriculum on on drones and uh, basically took their classes through two different um, courses, uh, one that got into the deep ethical kind of legal regulations, you know, side of 
of drone use, including building one. And then they, they got into other issues about the media, what happens when you attach a camera to a drone and how that changes the game. Their names are Dr. Uh, Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Larson. Uh, Dr. Holton is an assistant professor of humanity and humanities scholar in the Department of Communications at the University of Utah. Dr. Sean Lawson is also an associate professor of communication at the University of Utah. So we welcome both of you here. Thanks again for coming back with us. Hey, great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Now, tell me this. Um, so I, I have a friend. So I'm going to couch it that way. I have a friend that uh, they make a lot of really big YouTube videos that are really popular that get tens of millions of views, and they use a lot of drones. And um, I these people also, you know, do real estate videos with drones, and they fly the drones around the houses for real estate or businesses for real estate. It's it is a it's it's a cutting edge industry that um, that really can make you some good money, and yet the, that was something that ten years ago was never really thought of, right? So you, you you're you're on the cutting edge of technology that also includes serious possible harm if you're not careful. But also the government regulations, the FAA needs to be involved. They're thinking about regi- having registering of the of the drones. Um, where do you see this going? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Lawson. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the FAA is currently working on um, you know getting their their plan uh, together for. Um, you know some rules for integrating drones into the national airspace. They um, have released a draft of those rules um, this last year, um, so they're they're behind schedule on that. Um, so we're still waiting on you know the final rule. It was open for uh, notice and comment. Um, that period has closed, and um, now we're waiting for them to you know come out with uh, their their final rule. Um, for what that's going to look like. Um, in the meantime, they've attempted to put together some rules, as you mentioned, for uh, registering drones. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I think that's the next immediate um, battle. Um, they're saying they want to try to have those rules out by December the 20th, oh, wow. uh, in time for Christmas. Yeah. Um, I, th- I personally think it's um, very unlikely that they will uh, be out in time. Um, they're still very early in the sort of regular uh, rulemaking process. Um, normally, they would have a lot of steps left to go through. And on average, it, it, it takes about two and a half years to get a rule <laughs> through the process right. that they're trying to go through. Um, so there's a lot of questions about whether or not they're actually going to get it done by December the 20th. Um, there's speculation that they might try to invoke their sort of emergency uh, safety powers that they have mm-hmm. to sort of short-circuit the normal uh, rulemaking process to get it done sooner. Um, but that's almost certain to trigger, um, you know, lawsuits. Um, and, and, and probably, there's probably rightly so. I mean, there's some good reasons why, sure. um, you know, they probably um, are not legally allowed to sort of skip the process at this point. Um, so it's going to remain contentious. It's And it's also going to remain because of, the, the ongoing ambiguity, it, it, you know, it's going to remain contentious, um, I think, for the foreseeable future. Do they, do they call you guys? I mean, somebody's about to make rules, and I know they're well-informed. I mean, I know everybody's lobbying, I'm sure, the FAA on this. But in the end, it seems like 
a couple of professors that have held classes where for hours students that are creative have been looking at every angle of drones. It seems like you have a lot of information that would be very, very valuable to this process. Um, yeah, we haven't been consulted uh, on the on the rulemaking process for the FAA. Um, uh, we we were involved at at one point um, in some you know, meetings, uh, you know, with the uh, I think it's like the Utah Film Commission, mm. um, you know, uh, with some meetings that they were having, uh, talking about like what um, you know what they could do and what the state could start doing to um, you know help out um, you know film producers and. Uh, Movie folks, you know, because that's a big that's a big thing in Utah. Yeah. Um, who might want to use drones in their work, and so they they put together a, a group of people that were sort of exploring those issues at one point. Um, but again, it's really hard for anyone at a state level or or elsewhere to to really make a lot of progress and know what they can and can't do at this point without a final sort of rule from the FAA. Hmm. Um, but you know, they did bring in a lot of really good people uh, and organizations to be a part of. Um, uh, the group of people that they put together for the the registration plan. Um, so you know it's 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 good people who are well intentioned. They're trying to do the best thing. You know, not they're trying to reach consensus on uh, the best kind of policy that they can come up with. I mean, I think there's still a lot of flaws in what that what they have proposed to do with the registration uh, process, the registration rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I think it will probably be challenged, um, if for no other reason than that. Pretty much everything in life seems to trigger a lawsuit these days. <laughs> That's right. Um, Why not? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they, you know, we do have to give them credit where, you know, they really are trying to deal with a really very new technology. It's a very new situation that we're in, and it's difficult to make yeah. to make these rules. And so I think they are coming from a good place in terms of their intentions, and they're they're trying to do the right thing. Is now we we know Amazon. They're you know they're on a a course to be offering drones that would deliver packages. I know Google also wants to get involved with that. If they came to you guys um, and your students, what – maybe give us two or three pieces of advice. Uh, Sean, maybe what what would you tell them to, to to watch out for just from what you've learned from your students and your class on the ethical use of drones? And, and Avery, you'd be uh, thinking of some ideas as well. What would we be telling Google – what should uh, Amazon be watching out for, and maybe even just the citizenry when we're thinking about this this new technology? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think at this point, uh, you know, uh, one thing I would tell uh, these companies is I, I think I think the the legal side of things is probably going to get worked out. Um, you know, I think they have probably some decent pull with the FAA in terms of you know, lobbying um, and and getting a legal framework and a situation in the future where they're going to be able to use this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bigger thing they probably need to worry about is going to be uh, public perception of the technology yeah. and potential backlash against seeing these things flying around their neighborhoods um, and the fear that that can cause in terms of privacy in terms of safety concerns. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say that that would be one thing I would advise companies that are getting into the use of drones um, to, be, to be really cautious about. Even if you can, uh, you know, get a legal situation where the FAA is not going to come after you, you could very well get backlash from people. Right. Yeah, they now, need to be educated, right, and, and not throw rocks at it. Right, right. And, yeah, and on the side of, you know, the citizenry, 
um, you know, I understand people's concerns, uh, safety concerns and privacy concerns. At, at the same time, though, um, I think there has been a little bit of overhyping of the fear uh, around the technology. And so I would, you know, caution people to just sort of take a deep breath and uh, take a step back. Hmm. If you see a drone flying over your yard, you actually don't have the right to shoot it down or <laughs> throw rocks at it. Um, you can call the police. You know, it's potentially a privacy, uh, yeah. you know, or potentially a trespass issue that you could uh, file a charge about. But um, what you can't do is just start shooting or uh, <laughs> destroying things. Right. Um, you know, that would be the same as if, um, you know, somebody drove their car into your driveway and you didn't give them permission. You don't just get to start shooting them. Or throwing rocks, right? Or throwing rocks at them because <laughs> they came on your property. It, you know, it's the same thing uh, with a drone. It might just be little Timmy next door who lost right. his drone. <laughs> And it likely probably is. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest and say when I uh, first got um, some some toy-grade drones a couple years ago for Christmas, I took them out and started flying them and uh, learned what our students later learned, uh, which is that they're not that easy to fly. Yeah, and wily. Yeah. very quickly uh, crashed one on my neighbor's roof and had to go and knock on his door and say, yeah, can I go on your roof with a ladder to get my drone? And, you know, luckily he was very nice about it. Did he look so, at you like, aren't you a professor? Right, right. He's like, you're, you're an adult. Why are you flying uh, toy robots around the neighborhood? Uh, yeah, so. That's good stuff. <laughs> hey, uh, Dr. Holton, what would, you, what would you be consulting or counseling these, these companies and just the citizenry to, to think about, you know, when it comes to drones? Right. I just to follow up on what Dr. Lawson said, avoiding the fear hype, I think, is, is really key. And uh, the media hasn't really helped us out with that. I'm, I'm sure. Some of the, the, the stories that have been done, but also some of the commercials we see, the car commercial where the drones are swarming and kind of chasing everybody. <laughs> but uh, one thing that, that the companies have talked about doing that I think is really smart, and, and some of the drone companies are in on this too, is finding better ways to signify what the purpose of a drone is, either by color or by flashing lights. That way, if, if you do see a drone flying over your yard, um, you're a little bit m- better equipped to identify what its purpose mm, is. That's is a great idea. Is it a package? Is it there uh, to do harm? You know, those is there a camera on board? I mean, that might be fa- I mean, that would be really easy. If it's flashing green, that might mean camera or whatever, and then you can worry. Right, and, and some of the, the proposed systems for uh, deliverables actually have you know identifiable grid patterns, too, where... Uh, you would be in a zone that you know drones are flying in. Okay. You'd be able to see drones that aren't flying erratically. But just being able to, to help the public identify sort of the good from the bad, yeah. uh, I, I think is a really big help for these companies, and I'm glad to see that they're doing it proactively. Mm. I think that's great. I mean, if it's an ISIS drone, it ought to fly the ISIS flag. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm not sure that, the, that they would agree with you that, <laughs> yeah. that they'll do that. Flag. No, but legally they should. <laughs> right. They, legally they should do that. You know, one one thing to point out, too, uh, with the millions of drones that are expected to be sold or the, the 1.2 million this Christmas, is that the majority of those, like Dr. Lawson said, will wind up uh, just being crashed in a house, <laughs> crashed near a tree, or, or crashed on a roof. Yeah, floating down the gutter. Right, and, and not really tinkered with again because they are so difficult to fly. But those that do remain airborne and, and those folks who are conscientious about flying them um, are in on these kinds of conversations. Right. How to, how to better signify themselves from the general public so that uh, folks aren't afraid when they, when they see them flying overhead. I love it. And I, and I think, I really, I laud your work because a lot of people aren't this, you know, advanced in at least trying to even educate and inform people. So 
That's why I, I had to get you on here. Again, um, we appreciate you both uh, being with us. Dr. Avery Holton, Dr. Sean Lawson from the University of Utah Department of Communication. We appreciate both of you and your great work. And again, we're going to try to do what we can to avoid the fear hype. As a media source, we're going to downplay the fear. Hey, it's just, I mean, there's dangers, but you know what? The people that are flying the the really advanced tools and these advanced drones, they're they're serious. They're taking it serious. And uh, we, we all, I think, we all can be... We all can be a lot more informed, a lot less reactive about it. Let's get proactive and figure out how these things can also benefit our lives. Anyway, interesting stuff. We'll take a break. My friends, come back, wrap up the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Interesting stuff. It really is. When you think about the the changes, I mean, imagine just being able to deliver medicine by in an easier way, in a more efficient way to, you know, middle America. Get your I can get the meds pretty close to your front porch. And if they're not there, check the rain gutter. They might be up there. Sometimes we get a little crazy. But when you also think about um, how many kids in the last 20 years have grown up uh, playing video games, a drone pilot could become a very, you know, it could be, it'd become one of the hottest jobs around. Sure, you don't fly, you know, an F-16 or whatever. You just fly a drone for Google. And then all of a sudden, everyone wants to be your friend. You're picking up ladies everywhere you go. I don't know. I think it's fascinating. And yet we're terrified of them. And it makes sense, right? So part of the key to the show that we do is we just want to inform you. The majority of drones that will be bought this year, the 1.2 million, will end up in the garbage can. Because the, the kids will run out there and immediately crash it into the ground and it won't fly again. Right, And their parents are probably not going to be technical enough to go replace the two motors that they blew up. Oh, new drone. Some, though, and but don't you remember as a kid, I remember walking by a park and seeing a dad flying an airplane, a remote control airplane, and just sitting there and watching him fly this airplane around a park. Fascinating. Well, now it's going to be every day, everywhere you go. Interesting stuff, folks. Um, we'll take a break. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Hey, uh, tragedy in uh, San Bernardino, California. Uh, 14 dead, 17 injured. You've you've heard the news. You've heard the stories. Um, but, man, crazy. The shooters were a husband, wife, 
combo left a six-month-old baby home with grandma while they went back to basically his work party and opened fire. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows exactly what was going on. He was in the party, left the party, kind of in a hurry. Some uh, reports from the people at the party were saying that he didn't look agitated. Another one said there was some sort of disagreement or something, and then he got up and left right before they took an office photo, and then he returns. And there were two people. Yeah, in military-ish kind of garb. They They had gear. They were wearing some kind of something that looked like body armor. They're now now it seems like they're backing off saying it was body armor, but it was military type clothing. And then they ended up uh, in a chase with the police, and then a shootout with the police, and both were killed. Both suspects were killed. So again, this is another mass shooting, and I guess we could chalk it up to another mass shooting, and then we could get into the the gun discussion, which is very appropriate. But also, back in the day, we used to have a lot of shootings the mass shootings tended to be the angry employee going back to his workplace stressed the, and, the and taking it out of the postal worker right, that happened several worker. times so this is a, this is a really weird scenario two gunmen which is so rare um there uh the the wife was from Saudi Arabia he had married her about 2 years ago according to family members yeah, yeah. and he was a he was a religious um, Muslim, but not extremist. They didn't think just very faithful, very religious. Coworker said he didn't talk about yeah. it. It wasn't something he brought up in the office. And again, he was I mean, at a, he was at a holiday party, so I mean it wasn't a, right. a huge deal for him, I guess, to <sighs> to have that sort of a celebration. Um, other information they said there was a third person detained. Okay. But they don't think that person was involved in the actual shooting. They just were somehow there because the reports were that the the black SUV was pulled over. There was two people in it, and a third person was seen running from the SUV. Oh, and so they detained that person. But that, that's all they've said so far. <laughs> Look, I was just trying to wash his windows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Can a guy not wash a a guy's windows anymore without getting in trouble? So they detain that person, Uh, but they're not sure what his connection to or if there is a connection to this. It's a big deal. I mean, it is. And it's – and again, our prayers go out. There's no – you were at a Christmas party. And it's the health department. I mean, these are are health workers. Part of of the – kind of the confusion was the facility they were at – is a facility that helps uh, disabled, disabled kids, disabled kids, and they just were renting a room in that yeah. building to have this party. They weren't part of that facility at all. So at first, you're like, "What are people? You know, what yeah. is this?" Yeah. And then it turns out it's this office party from the health department, and I don't know. It's amazing. And then, then again, I just sit there and I think. So we have police officers that will then run into the middle of all of this. There's, the rest of us run away from it. There's audio. I was listening to some uh, clips on CBS News this morning, and uh, you'd see a police officer, and he's motioning for people to come out, everyone with their hands up yeah. type of thing. And he's saying, don't worry, I'll take a bullet before you do. He's telling Holy the people cow. as they left the building that. So, Which, again, juxtaposed to what you're seeing in Chicago and and around the country with police officers, no matter what, the the vast majority of police officers are there to protect and serve. and put their lives in jeopardy and run into – I mean th- uh, this couple shot shot up a group of about 100 people or whatever and cops just, OK, we're going to go get that guy. 
I mean, the nerve that that takes to then pull the dude over and then start firing and take these people on. I mean, remember the there was a shootout in California a few years ago where the cops were shredded. They got right. because of the the armor and the the guns that the the criminals were using. So that's got to be in the back of the minds of every one of these police officers. So we thank them as well, and uh, prayers go out to the families and to the, all the people of San Bernardino that now are going to struggle just sleeping at night. So, man, tragic. Um, on the show today, we got a we got a great topic. Do you guys do you feel like you have a calling? Um, not in your local church congregation, but oh, oh. you feel like you have. Sometimes I feel like I have one of those. <laughs> do you feel like you have like a a purpose, a true calling in life? Hmm. You know, like so when you ask a six year old and you say, "I have a brother in law that knew his entire life he wanted to be a doctor," hmm. actually two brothers in law, and they wanted to be doctors. They just knew that was what they're called to do. Did you have that? Like, did you know you were called to do radio producing? No. Because that would be pathetic. <laughs> I, not to be rude. I enjoy it, but I don't necessarily see it as a calling. Yeah. Ben, do you feel called to make ice cream? Ben, I don't know. <laughs> it's a big yeah. delay. Well, you would have known, just so you know. If you knew you were it's called, like, hmm. you would have been like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel called to do what I do, but... When I was young, I didn't know – I just knew the calling would be to help people in relationships and communication. Hmm. But I, I, I didn't know how because there's not a job for that. Right. But I, I knew that very young. My wife hates that idea because she's like, how come you know what you're good at? Some people don't feel like they know what they're good at because their talents are a little more hidden. Or not defined. Yeah, like you're, what yeah. you were saying, you didn't have a job for it. Because sometimes you look for a calling, mm-hmm. and you think, okay, a job, and you start looking, and there's yeah. nothing that really fits what you want to do. Right. And so being able to define that is kind of probably uh, why some people maybe they don't feel like they have a calling because they don't know exactly what they like and what words to put with well, that and to define maybe it. it. Yeah, and it doesn't jive with our current reality. I mean, I yeah. I was first called. Maybe to... I want to be a drone pilot. I don't know. Oh, you'd be great. You play all those video games all day. Um, I wanted to be I, – I didn't want to be. I knew I was called to be you know, a premier point guard in the NBA. Well – Then I realized – I don't know if that's a calling. No, I was. It was calling. Really? Oh, yeah. You felt it? Uh-huh. So why didn't it manifest itself? That's the weird thing. Mm. I felt it. You wanted it but didn't have any skills. I had no skills. Interesting. I – I don't think that's what that is. Yeah. There's wishes – no, no, this was calling. Does a calling, do you have to have the skills to go with the calling? Well, no, because some skills you'd have to acquire, hmm. you know, so you'd have to earn it. But I thought I had a strength for it. I mean, I looked a lot like John Stockton growing up. So I had a lot of what it takes. He's taller than you are. Well, like what? By a, by a foot and a half, two feet? Just an inch or two, but <laughs> he's not that tall. No, he's 6'1". Six, he's six yeah. Yeah, I'm 5'11". You see him walk by, and you're like, "Wow, he's just—he's a lot like, like me." Any other guy? He, hey, he's got white pasty legs. I've got white pasty legs. Right. He wears short shorts. I wear short shorts. He's athletic. He, he's you're... athletic. I used to be till the accident. <laughs> That's where the gift went away. So today we'll be speaking with um, Emily Wapnick, who um, is is going to be talking to us about the fact that most people don't necessarily just have one true calling. They have multiple potentialities. They have multiple things, strengths, talents, gifts that they could be called to. 
and she's going to help us sort through how you find yours. It's going to be cool. We need it. Otherwise, you're just living a life of quiet desperation, making ice cream for your roommates. Wait, hold on. What? Huh? What's your problem? Oh, are you with us now? I I fell asleep for a second. What were you saying? No, nothing. Nothing. Good to have you back, though. Ben, the ice cream man. Let's get to the headlines. Find out from Terry South what's going on around the rest of the world. Terry? Thanks, Matt. As we were talking about Saeed Farouk and Tashfin Malik, believed to have killed 14 people, wounded 17 others at Farouk's office party in San Bernardino on Wednesday. They had been married two years, had a six-month-old daughter, according to family representatives, as they told the L.A. Times. This morning, the investigation continues at a home in Redlands, California. More than two dozen FBI agents combing through the home in its garage, according to federal officials. FBI officials say it's likely the home will yield answers as to what motiv- what motivated the shooting. Here, F- here's FBI Assistant Director David Bowditch on this, if this is, in fact, terrorism. Is this terrorism? And I am still not willing to say that we know that for sure. We are definitely making some movements that it is a possibility. We are making some adjustments to our investigation. It is a possibility, but we don't know that yet. And we're not willing to go down that road yet. Officials are saying it's possible that it's some combination of motivation involving both a workplace dispute and terrorism prompted that prompted the shooting. Kind of a combo of both. Uh, one of the survivors of Wednesday's mass shooting in San Bernardino said the shooters fired for 30 seconds at random, attacking people inside the holiday party. Relatives of Denise Peraza, 27, told the LA Times that she called to share details of the shooting with her family. She said the doors opened, two individuals dressed in black wearing face masks entered, carrying guns. They began to shoot at random. One paused, reloaded, continued shooting. Everyone dropped to the floor. She hid under a desk and was shot once in the lower back. After the shooters left, it was quiet for five minutes. Then law enforcement arrived and asked those who could move to leave the building immediately. Wow. Some... Did you hear the phone calls that came out of that? No. People saying, yeah, yeah. I've been shot. I, a few I love it. One woman called her sister. Just wanted to know I loved you. Yeah. Man. Scary moments. Crazy. Moving on, GOP officials are already starting to imagine how they can handle an election season if Donald Trump is selected as their 2016 presidential nominee. A seven-page internal memo obtained by the Washington Post laid out a plan in September to staffers at the National Senatorial Campaign Committee on how to deal with Trump if he wins the nomination next summer. The memo laid out a series of recommendations for Senate races which explained that candidates should consider tapping into Trump's outsider spirit but also rejects some of his extreme positions and comments. While the memo suggests, for example, that candidates change the look by removing their suits and visiting people in their own homes, it also suggests that candidates should be afraid to or shouldn't be afraid to distance themselves from Trump. Trump is a misguided missile, the memo said, because <laughs> Trump always says what's on his mind. On Trump and women, the memo bluntly stated, Houston, we have a problem. Donald Trump has some wacky he said some wacky things about women. He's a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> so the committee is out there. They're, they're, yeah, it's, I think that you're going to see the Donald ground and pound now. Because you can already, one by one, Fiorina took him on on the show earlier today. They're all just slowly starting to unload. Go off on them and see if they can uh, maybe not have that happen. Because that's interesting. You're setting up your senatorial candidates to, okay, this is what we're going to do if it happens. It's uh, good and it's bad. Yeah. Let's try to figure Folks, this out. Folks, we need more blood in this race. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Uh, and finally, as far as anyone can tell, Turkish President Erdogan, that's his last name, yeah. isn't especially skinny, pale, or obsessed with the small gold ring. However, it will now be up to a court in southern Turkey to decide if comparing him to the Lord of the Rings character Gollum should be considered an insult. A Turkish doctor created a meme comparing J.J.R. Tolkien's beloved but creepy monster Gollum to the president of Turkey in 2014 because hmm. insulting the head of state is a crime in Turkey punishable by a prison sentence. Wow. Experts have been called in to determine if Gollum is in fact insulting an insulting character to be compared to. <laughs> Let's see. Hmm. Did that feel insulting? Let's see. I would go with yes. The judge overseeing the case confessed that he's only only seen parts of the Lord of the Rings series, so he appointed two academics two behavioral experts, oh, an expert living. on cinema and TV production to better determine if Gollum, being compared to Gollum, is an insult. Just show him a picture. <laughs> no. He's like Just bald. show the guy a picture. It's pretty offensive. You don't, When have you ever been compared to Gollum and it yeah. was like, oh, that was nice. Yeah. Thank you. That was positive. Thanks. Wow. No. But yeah, it is a crime of state. To uh, go ahead and criticize the head of state that way. I think we are. I like that rule. Um, I want to institute that rule on the show. That if anybody criticizes the host, it is a crime of state. Well, Terry is more of like the the head, right? What? Because he sets up the show. Well, yeah, but he sets up the show for the head of state. Yeah, but I feel like he is the head of state because he's in charge of what goes on. Right. Um, so I won't well, insult Terry. So, but what goes on? You mean the Matt Townsend show? Yeah, you're kind of a figurehead. Or we let's just call me figurehead of state. Okay, and he's the head of state. Wow, you got me there. Uh, yeah, you know what? That's great. That's actually a great point. I will have Terry do your exit interview. Because that, that'll work for me. Man, it's so hard to find good good help. Anyway. I am right here. Oh, sorry. I thought you couldn't see me because I was behind the thing. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Emily Wapnick will be joining us. She's going to be talking to us about uh, your one true calling. Do you have a one true calling or are you a multi-potentialite? Mmm, a new word. We'll be talking about your many, many, many capacities, your abilities, your gifts, and how to leverage them to to create a better life for yourself. Stick with us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live stronger and uh, love longer. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So when you think about it, do you have a purpose in life? It always amazed me. I, I, uh, I had dated my wife since I was 17, which is amazing because now I'm like 77. So it's 60 years of knowing and dating my wife. But uh, as we would babysit our little brothers, cute little boys, just big cheeks, I'd say, hey, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? 
And at about six or seven or eight, they're like, I want to be a doctor. I probably want to be a cardiologist, do interventional cardiology. I'm like, wow. What do you want to be, Matt, when you grow up? I'm 17. I want to be an astronaut. I'll probably play pro ball for a while. And then we'll see. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But I kind of knew what I liked. And I knew what uh, my strengths were. And so it's a it's a big thing. But I feel like a lot of people out there, um, they want, they just want to go right out and have a purpose and be totally driven and like a calling where you feel called to do what you're doing. But maybe that's just setting us up for failure. You know, maybe it's setting us up with an expectation that's not realistic. Most people wouldn't sit there and say, Someday I want to just only do this one thing, a very specific task. I want to make sandwiches at Subway. That's probably not what anyone would just be born. I'm thinking that's their call and wanting that to be their calling. They might know they want to work with people, right? So um, we have a, a guest. We're, we're trying to get on the phone. Uh, we're we're uh, having some issues getting her on the phone, Emily Wapnick. But until we can do that, um, let me talk about some ways that we all, all of us, can figure out how or what we are called to do. And um, the really powerful part of life, I think, happens when my vocation, my job, can become part of my avocation, which is something I feel compelled to do, called to do, or just extra good at. I feel like I um, I have a job where I get to do every day something that I can see that my talents tend to work toward and lean, lead me toward. Now, some of you as listeners would say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not seeing that. I'm not hearing that, man. <laughs> But my, my purpose initially was never to just like be a radio show host. That was never my ultimate purpose or goal. My goal was to see if I could help people learn to be better in their lives. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be somebody that, that could teach. I always wanted to be a teacher. I always knew somehow my career would involve communication and speaking and talking. And that was before I even felt comfortable doing it. I remember it as a young boy, I I used to look up to, you know, reporters and anchors and think, yeah, I would like to do that someday. I I really never thought I'd be like a movie star kind of guy ever. <laughs> that was not what I wanted. I never wanted to be an astronaut. I never wanted to be I wanted to help people. And so anyway, as 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 we figure out our own lives, it's how we're going to figure out we we have to figure it out some way, right? And and we can try to figure it out by what everyone else wants us to be. I remember when I was um, in college trying to decide what I wanted to be. I was I was going to go into law and be a lawyer, and because I thought that would help people, right? I could help people learn to talk. I remember a man came over and visited me, and he's like, "Look," and he pushed so hard on me about going to law school. He's like, "The last thing we need in this world is another lawyer." So seriously, he even pulled out like the Bible. Talked about lawyers and scribes and, you know, it's a little extreme because lawyers are good people. 
But uh, it actually got me questioning who I am and what I should do. And I remember one time my wife sat me down and just said, you know, you're really good at this. I think you just need to do this. And that was media and journalism back in the day. And that helped. So sometimes getting feedback from somebody else on what they think you would be good at, it's really important. And so parents, you could play a big role in helping your children identify their strengths, know what they're good at. Um, there's a, an article I found by Mark Manson. He has a blog, uh, markmanson.net, which is um, about life and you know thinking and, and growing and becoming mindful. There's an article that's titled, Seven Strange Questions That Help You Find Your Purpose in Life. Seven strange questions. And so let's go through some of them. Um, <laughs> well, we're not going to use that one because that's really bad. Uh, here's a question for you. Think about it. What is true about you today that would make your eight-year-old self cry? Interesting question. What is true about you today that would make your eight-year-old self cry? I mean, I'm assuming my eight-year-old self would not like to know that, you know, you're stuck doing something you hate. Or that you feel like you have no control over your life. Or, you know, think of your eight-year-old self that could make, you know, a box into a spaceship. So now all of a sudden, if your eight-year-old self knew that you in no way, shape, or form exercise any creativity in your life, and you just instead live everyone else's creativity, you know, maybe your eight-year-old self would be a little frustrated with you. A lot of us have lost and maybe even been dumbed down. Maybe we've even been kind of psyched out of our greatest blessings, our greatest gifts. Remember, everybody, everybody has strengths. And now a strength might need to be worked on, but it's yours. You came here with it. It's yours. It's instinct. It's part of your personality. It's instinctive. It's natural. Anyway. What do you know do you need to change about yourself that your eight-year-old self would cry or be frustrated with if, if your eight-year-old self could talk to you today? Here's another question. What makes you forget to eat or go to the bathroom? When you're doing it, you can go all day just doing this thing. You're so passionate about it. You're so into it. You don't even want to eat. I mean, for you, Ben, it's obviously ice cream. Yes. But you're eating ice cream the entire time. Actually, not all the time. You can't stand it, can you? No, oh, I, I love ice cream. Do you still? Yeah. Um, and you actually make your ice cream in your bathroom. Yeah, so like the bathroom. That's a hard question. Going to the you. bathroom yeah. isn't a problem. Yeah, because, you're right there. Yeah. I don't know that I would make my food in my bathroom. I'm just saying. Well, I that's mean, usually just my personal ice cream. That's pathetic. Um, so, and feel free to jump in, Terry, because we're helping you find your purpose. There was a point in college when I purchased my first PlayStation Three. Oh no! There's See, so that so your purpose in life, the, the, when you play PlayStation Three, you forget to eat and go to the bathroom. 
Well, I mean, at the at that moment, I was exploring different things in college, different ideas, different. I I was really finding that I was good at writing. Yeah, I could put together a term paper just on a whim, no problem, and yeah. I was enjoying it. I'd I'd get into this sort of flow. Yeah, as we yeah. talked about flow. on the show, you you start you start just. Everything makes sense, and you're able to recall things. You can you're, you're taking so much in when you read, yeah. and you understand more, and you just feel like all this knowledge is coming at you at once, and you can process it. And then I bought a PlayStation Three, and there was a game called Gran Turismo, which is a racing game, <laughs> and I just lost it. You lost all hope in life. I finished. I do my homework, but I wouldn't do it to the extent no. where it was before. I was trying to perfect it. This I was is- trying to get it done so I could go play this game. This is where your addiction began. And it turned into all – I was so enthralled. I just couldn't stop. I, it wasn't like I was dominating my life, but I'd, I'd forget to eat. I'd look up with the clock and go, oh, i got to well, go to work. Maybe that's – I just missed lunch. Maybe that's your calling in life. Video games? Yeah. I'm not very good at them. Maybe you could be like that video game player that lit his entire apartment on fire in China. No, no, that that wouldn't be my uh, my calling to, uh, to See, lose that's, it. That's the interesting thing because – but maybe you should really be a drone pilot. I could. Because you were so into Gran Turismo. I do have a game where, where Batman throws a Batarang and it can you can watch the remote view. And I do enjoy piloting the Batarang around the game. Is that the same thing? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's all geeky. <laughs> it's just unhealthy. But at, that was a point where I lost control. And I think I may have lost what my calling may have been. What if I was supposed to be a writer? But you really are a writer. You write all the time. It's not very well. well no, I mean, but you I f- do. I fill in the blanks. You write every line I say. Well, no. Everything I say, so, you've written. Wait, so all all the stabs you take at me, mm-hmm. they're actually from they're Terry? They're written by Terry. It's I would sc- never say that stuff. It's all scripted insults. Wow. And it's hard because you like numbers them. Scripted insult to Ben number one. Scripted insult to Ben number two. And then after the show, I'm like, stay on script. There's like, a purpose here. There's 45 scripted insults. I feel bad for the boy. They build upon one another. You go out of order, it makes no sense. <laughs> Here's another question <laughs> to help you figure out if you've uh, how to find your passion in life. How can you better embarrass yourself? I don't know that I can. But part of life, a lot of us, we don't reach anymore. We don't stretch anymore. We don't want to embarrass ourselves by trying something new. Like Ben – Tries a new ice cream flavor. He brought me the flavor uh, um, lemon and peppermint. I mean, that was a risk. Okay. It's horrible. No, that was really good. But that's risky, right, Ben? But, so, but you have to be willing to throw yourself out there and embarrass yourself. So maybe when you're in your passion, you're more willing to do that. And when you're just in your day-to-day, you're not. You're not going to risk you're not going to be vulnerable. I heard an interview yesterday with the one of the founders of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. He was talking about him and his two other founders. They decided to go this way because they needed a place to live. Oh, really? They, were, they invented they were, Airbnb because they needed a place to live. Yeah, that's what they said. That was kind of their motivation was they were looking for a place to live, so they created this service. Let's throw and, this together. And now it's $2 billion business at the moment. At least that's what, it's, that's what it's worth. But taking a risk, taking that it. step, it's very hard to do. Well, and especially if you're in the job – if your job is for survival. If you're working for if, money. If you thrive for... doing what you do, 
you're, you're going to take a risk. I take risks every time I speak. I'll just I'll try new stuff. Yeah, and it's fun. I don't even feel it. It's a risk. I'll even be vulnerable. Like I'll talk about my problems. I'll talk about my board operator. I'll talk about whatever's troubling me. You make a joke. The room's dead quiet all the time. You're like, huh, okay, all the time. Tough room. So you got to be vulnerable, right? And when you're willing to be vulnerable, that's probably telling you something. When you're not willing to be vulnerable, then you might be not in your passion. It's writing a book's the most vulnerable thing I ever did because every thought is out there for people to beat up. That's why I haven't written my other books. But if you see people that are successful in whatever industry, whatever company, whatever, they've taken a step. Yeah. They've put it all on the line and they've taken that risk and it succeeded. But for every success, there's all these failures too. Exactly. Which also shows us a little bit of the randomness. Let's take a break and we'll come back and continue this discussion, folks. We're going to continue talking about the, the article by Mark Manson, Seven Strange Questions That Help You Find Your Life Purpose. Seven strange questions. We're actually only doing six because one of them's pretty out there. And I can't do it on the air. So um, I could make one up. I'll make one up. Seven strange questions to help you find your life purpose. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead the life you want. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Today we're talking about uh, your calling, finding your calling. I mean, a lot of us associate a calling with something, you know, God gave you, and it might be in your faith group or your your church group. Um, It might be a ministry you start. But there, there is power in feeling or having some connection to what you do every day, your vocation, being somehow connected to your avocation, your your purpose in life, your calling in life. Uh, the problem is not all of us have a calling, or we don't feel like we just have this natural, instinctive thing we need to go do. And so, trying to give you some tools to to help you walk through how maybe to go about finding out what your calling might be. We're using an article by Mark Manson's uh, Seven Strange Questions that help you find your life purpose. Some of them, remember, we've already kind of talked about what is true about you today that would make your eight-year-old self cry. Like if you just settled into somebody that you weren't when you were eight years old, that creative, you know, big-thinking child. What makes you forget to eat and go to the bathroom? What well, That might help you identify what your passion is. How can you better embarrass yourself? That might be telling you where you're, you've stopped, you know, stretching and reaching. One thing I've always wanted to do, and I do not have the guts to do it, is to just go try a stand-up comedy routine. However, I feel like I do it many times in my speaking, but there's not a pressure to be funny when you're speaking, like to businesses. It's just a side benefit. But I think you should go for it, Matt. Yeah, thank you. You want me to fall. What? No, I know what you're doing. I'm giving you a, an opportunity to embarrass yourself. <laughs> Dude, I embarrass myself every day. But not to this magnitude. Try being me every day, falling asleep in the meetings. 
everything else I do. Hey, here's another question. How are you going to save the world? Is it being a teacher? Yesterday afternoon, I spoke to a bunch of uh, educators, teachers uh, here locally in Utah. You know, for some of them, their goal in life is just to change the life of a child and be a teacher. What is, how are you going to change the world? Question number six, gun to, gun to your head. If somebody put a gun to your head, if you had to leave the house all day, every day, where would you go and what would you do? Where would you go and what would you do? Let's say you could not return to your current job. Where would you go? What would you do? By the way, if you had all the bills paid and could do anything you wanted in the world, where would you go? What would you do? If you were going to die, question number seven, one year from today, what would you do and how would you want to be remembered? So when you start to answer that, you may not frame your life around your profession. So if it's about, well, I'd want to spend time with my kids and my family and I'd want to get to the beach and just hang out and spend a lot of time with my family. Okay, then now you know what your passion is and maybe that's the point. Maybe your passion isn't in your job. Maybe it's in another role that you have, like being a father or a husband or a grandfather or a grandmother. Powerful. Like I said earlier, I, I feel like I have created a job that is very much aligned to my values, my purpose in life. It's, my strengths are totally aligned to it, and it, it works for me, but it wasn't a job. It's an, it's, a, it's an amalgam of four other things. It's public speaking. It's writing and creating content, it's having a radio show, it's being, you know, able to coach and counsel people. It's four things it took to actually fulfill my one thing. And um, so don't ever think it has to come in one job or one package. Maybe what you are is you're a husband and, you know, you're a friend and you're uh, whatever your employment is. You're a counselor or a teacher. Don't assume it has to be one thing. I uh, have been reading a really interesting book by Nassim Nicholas Talib. The book is called Fooled by Randomness, The Hidden Role of Chance in Life and in the Markets. And um, he's really – he's kind of a – he's a tough cookie. He, he, he's not he's, – he's kind of – he's very cynical, but he's very, very intelligent And one of the things he makes as a point is that maybe much of our life is just actually pretty random. I was saying earlier how I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't know. I had no idea. But my brothers-in-law, they they both knew they wanted to be doctors. So is that just that they, they had this calling to be a doctor? Or did it have anything to do with the fact that their father was a doctor? So a lot of us get really caught up into thinking, you know, we've captured lightning in a bottle and we're pretty amazing. Except some of the randomness that might make you amazing is simply the fact that you grew up where you grew up. You know, you could have landed in the middle of Thailand in Bangkok or you could have landed in India where your dad made $100 a month, which is a pretty good living. But you didn't. 
you landed in Connecticut and your dad happened to be an investment broker in New York and you were then blessed enough to get into Columbia. And I guess it's just because you're incredible and you make great grades and you earned your way into Columbia except for the fact that randomly your dad had enough money to also send you to classes that made it a little easier for you to get into Columbia. Make sense? So some of what we are and the problem with us as humans is we tend to attribute everything that we do to just our, our incredible greatness. And we tend to take random events and maybe sometimes just something that's random, we kind of – we assign the purpose to it. Like we might even assign the blessings of God. I mean it would be great if we assigned them always to God. But many times we think God blesses us simply because we're obedient. But sometimes you can be an obedient, loving person and still get cancer. Well, yeah, so God must want me to learn cancer. Well, or it could just honestly be random. You know, you had cancer genes in your body that came from your mom and your dad. Well, yeah, but God put them there. Well, actually, you know, a lot of stuff God probably doesn't want to happen, um, like, I don't know, a shooting in San Bernardino. It's just random. A lot of stuff is just random. So uh, this book is it's just fascinating because it might be – it might change a lot of how we think if we thought that a lot of our success was more random than just earned. He gets into a really interesting discussion about Warren Buffett because Warren Buffett's incredible. He's incredible. And by the way, this guy is actually a financial market analyst and he's – he would probably hate to be called an analyst. But is Warren Buffett incredible or is he just a random anomaly of the 100,000 people that are in that field? Apparently what makes Warren Buffett amazing is his high tolerance for boredom. Really? Mm-hmm. He, so by the way, so just think of that. So what if he randomly has a high tolerance for boredom? Now, here's what's weird. I could go give you 100,000 other humans that have an incredible high tolerance for boredom that would never make the money that he and Berkshire Hathaway makes. So sometimes we think random – the ability to just have a high tolerance for boredom is his key to success, except I can give you 100,000 people that it didn't work for because they play video games all day. <laughs> or how about this one? We but always, is, is playing video games – a high tolerance of boredom or is that a no. need for entertainment? It could be a need for entertainment. But I could give you other people that sit on the front porch of their house and watch the wind blow. Because he brings up a really good point in this book that is fascinating. We think, well, hello, uh, Bill Gates quit college. Look, see? I mean it worked for him. And he's like, Bill Gates was random. I mean there's stuff that Bill Gates was doing in high school writing code when he was 14 that no one else was doing and he was writing more code than anyone else at any other time. So he wasn't just a random college student that quit. It was I mean he I mean, was just – he was a weird random event. And then he gets into the fact that he can give you another 100,000 people that have quit college and it didn't turn out so well for him. So what we attribute to like a strength, a trait, I know somebody that is incredible at what they do 
passionate. And every time he speaks, he talks about how his passion is the key to why he's so successful. And there's some other randomness to it. He happened to get in the industry at the right time. He happened to get pretty lucky at the right time. And um, again, we can give you another 100,000 people that are just as passionate and have gone nowhere, even in the similar field. So why it's important is maybe there's something bigger than what we attribute it to. And, and maybe one of the things you might want to eventually attribute some of life to is just random. Just random. Why do some people get multiple sclerosis and some don't? Why do some get Alzheimer's and some don't? It's, we'd love to just call it destiny. And I believe that God has a plan, but I think part of God's plan too is randomness. And to me, there's something comforting about knowing that if I lived in San Bernardino and my family member was, was in that incident, it might be comforting to know that sometimes it's just random. And now what I've got to do is muster everything I can do to respond to it. I don't know. Anyway, there are many ways to figure out what you're supposed to bring to this world. I would suggest one of the best ways is uh, to get to your highest self of your essence and not your ego. Don't jump into your ego where you have to please everybody. And don't start building it and thinking that everything in life is because of how great you are. Instead, maybe get into your essence, your most spiritual self, and let your spirit be your guide. I feel like my spirit just slowly kept showing me, yeah, you're good at this too. You can figure out a way to weave that in, and you can weave this in, and you can weave this in. And then I have a weird ability to, to have four jobs. Some people would rather just have one. No, not me. I want to be crazy confused. We're all different, folks. We're all different. And we're all in this crazy fight together, right? Anyway, there you have it, the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, so <laughs> last uh, before the break, I was talking about randomness. Some things are just random. Like this uh, woman in, o- in Oahu, she was the luckiest woman you've ever seen. She checked her bank account, and when she did, um, you know, she, she just needed to take some money out. Right, longtime Honolulu resident Angela Kwong swears she's not a serial shopper. So imagine her surprise when she logged into her bank account statement Tuesday morning, only to find out an outstanding balance of more than one point four trillion dollars. <gasps> I know. I was shocked and I couldn't believe it. The first time I saw it, I had to go to my bathroom and get my glasses and make sure it wasn't just because of my bad eyes. Kwong said. Making the situation all the more frustrating, her bank initially told her that their hands were tied. Yes, sorry. I mean, the account says what it says. You have an outstanding balance of $1.4 trillion. You shouldn't buy all that stuff on eBay. Knock it off. I mean, I'm serious. Uh, Does eBay 
even have enough like like goods products to so if you bought all of eBay I don't think they're even worth 1.4 trillion dollars. <laughs> no, I'm sure they're not. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of moo. Can you imagine like how do you convince a bank to look like just think this through. <laughs> there uh they said there was nothing they could do. Kwong's case was due to a technical glitch that the bank cleared up later that Tuesday afternoon. Uh, can you imagine the bill collector trying to get 1.2 trail? Uh, excuse me. Yes, we are looking for an Angela Kwong. Look, Angela, we need to get you in this program right now because uh, the interest on 1.4 is going to kill you. <laughs> That's crazy. It's random, folks. Or did maybe God wanted that to happen? I don't know. Uh, we'll take a break, my friends. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show in the can. We'll be back. More ideas, more tools next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Got a great show for you today. Uh, We're going to... um, Obviously, be talking with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation near the bottom of the hour. Uh, Also, we're going to be speaking with Arlene Pelicane, who uh, is an author of a book with um, Gary Chapman, the book, the author of The Five Love Languages. She's going to be joining us to help us with the gifts that we really need to make sure we're getting our kids for Christmas and maybe the ones we don't need to worry about. You got to listen to that one because powerful, powerful uh, information for what you should be buying your kids, especially when it comes to like electronic devices, but uh, really what you might not need to worry about getting them and what you could be giving them that would maybe matter a whole lot more, especially to deal with this crazy world we're living in. Again, another tragedy, another shooting, another mass shooting in uh, San Bernardino um, City in California, 14 people dead shot at basically a company party um, by a member of their organization, by the health department, um, the county health department there. Tragic. And 17 people are injured and, and boy, probably just countless others that are emotionally, you know, injured and, 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 and harmed. And so, again, how do you deal with this? This is, this is a, it's different than the rest. It's not just a mass shooting. It's a mass shooting by a couple, a husband and a wife that dropped their baby off at grandma's because they supposedly had a doctor's appointment and then went and shot up their workplace and then got in a chase, I guess, in a shootout with the police. Ah, Different. It's different. And again, they're not calling it terrorist, but uh, they're they're investigating it before they put any labels on it. Um, it happens to be that uh, the wife is was recently living in Saudi Arabia. He met her online. They have a child that's six months old. 
but they don't know. They don't know if they were radicalized. They don't know what. But tragic. So when you think about it, your kids are going to need some skills. And maybe some of the things we ought to be getting them for Christmas might actually help them be better tooled to handle this really difficult, crazy world we're living in. So we'll be getting to that in just a few minutes. Did you hear? You got to hear this. I'm sure you did. A trucker steals 40,000 pounds of meat. Was that friends of the guys who stole the thousands of pounds of cheese that yes. we had the story the other uh-huh. day? They're making cheeseburgers. There you go. Meat and cheese platter. <laughs> what, where do you take 40,000 pounds of meat? Wherever you want to. From a meat plant <laughs> in Pennsylvania. <laughs> According to troopers, a truck loaded with $110,000 worth of meat into a trailer uh, during a scheduled pickup on November 21st, and then they just drove off. He was supposed to deliver it by Monday to a company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but never showed up. A spokesman for the Nicholas Meat Company says the customer notified him Tuesday about the missing product, which would have been enough to make 160,000 burgers. Wow. Yeah. Was he opening a restaurant? I bet you he's opening a restaurant. Huh. I would just look for the – in Milwaukee? Is, oh, that's where they're supposed to be taking the truck. I'd be looking for wherever they're giving – Hamburgers away at a really cheap price. You know, pretty much every chain. Ten for a dollar? <laughs> Man. That's a lot of lot of burger. That's a lot of beef. So what would you do with that? Would you make them differently? Would you make them all the same? I would. Maybe they wasn't maybe it wasn't hamburger. Maybe it was filet mignon. Ooh. Mm. Or just steak. Mm. I still think I'd want to go steal a truck of pork and add a little bacon okay. to the hamburger. Right. Just kind of grind it into it? Mm. Just flavor it or a little just, bit? Or just get some bacon strips maybe. And, hmm. and then I'd get up to Wisconsin and grab some of that cheese. You know the guys that stole the cheese uh-huh. the other day? And then they tipped the truck over, I think yeah, yeah. the story went. And then the guy that stole the burger meat, or the, the, the meat, they've got together somehow. You know they did. Well, who do you think caused the cheese accident? Right. What are you going to do with all the cheese? You're going to make hamburgers out of all that meat. Makes sense. Crazy. Separately, it makes no sense. These crimes are crimes we, we of probably, opportunity. Well, we probably need to add the words allegedly. Oh, come on. Because some of this is speculation. Yeah. I think there's some things that you can be 100% sure about without concrete evidence. Yeah. Give me an example. Like someone steals a truckload of cheese. And somebody steals a truckload of meat. Obviously, they're going to get together. Obviously, there's a barbecue. It's a nefarious criminal mastermind sort of crime, and they're just trying to make a sandwich. All you need is heat. Yeah. So I'd look for the heat source. Someone's stealing barbecuers. (laughs) That's the next step. Um, Speaking of meat and... Go ahead. Make this transition. Ben. Um, ben, have you ever made ice cream out of meat? That was a horrible transition. No, I have not. Ben has. Tell me if you'd ever eat this. Yeah. Would you ever eat uh, a tomato, like slice? Okay. With maybe a scoop of vanilla ice cream on it. Mm, okay. And some balsamic vinegar on top. No. It sounds foofy. 
It is foofy. I'm not big on foofy food. But it's not just foofy. It's what, Ben foofy. What I have to compliment the chef. Ben, you've made that. And you've served it. You've eaten it. Yes. And? It's really good. Yeah. I don't know. Ice cream with tomato and but vinegar? It's not like a tomato paste. It's a real tomato. Well, Tomatoes are fruit. Yeah. You like fruit on your ice cream. Well, certain types of fruit. Not an acidy fruit? No. Like a strawberry. How about, have you ever had balsamic vinegar on your fruit? No. On your ice cream? No. See, that is what Ben brings to the show. He doesn't bring ice cream. Just ideas like that. Thanks, Ben. Anytime. Um, anything going on in the headlines, Terry? There's quite a bit going on. Reeling from the mass shooting in, Bald- or in uh, San Bernardino, Democrats will try to force the Senate vote. Thursday on legislation to stem gun violence. The specific measures are still being considered, but they would be proposed as amendments to a GOP package to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So you have an Affordable Care Act uh, bill, and then they tack on, let's put on some uh, regulation on, on, on gun control onto the back end of that. How, how successful do you think that'll be, Matt? I would say... Zero percent successful. I don't think it's going to fly. No. They've tried however many 50, 70, whatever times to repeal Obamacare, but never with you know some gun legislation attached to it. Yeah. So games. This, games. More games. Senator Harry Reed, Reed of Nevada, the Democratic leader, said uh, Wednesday shooting in California that gun violence has become a cancer on the nation, and we are better than this, Reed said. This madness must stop. President Obama commented on the shootings. But what we do know is is that there are steps we can take to make uh, Americans safer uh, and that we should come together in a bipartisan basis at every level of government to make these rare as opposed to normal. We should never think that this is something that just happens in the ordinary course of events because it doesn't happen uh, with the same frequency in other countries. According to the New York Times, including the shooting in San Bernardino, a total of 462 people have died and 1,314 have been wounded this year in mass shootings that have left four or more injured or dead. Tragic. Tragic. Moving on, the investigation at the house in Redlands, California, continues with more than two dozen FBI agents combing the home in its garage, according to federal officials. FBI officials say it's likely the home will yield answers as to what motives uh, motivated the shooting. Dozens of federal agents and local police are scouring the mass shooting scene at the Inland Regional Center where the shootings happened, and the scene where the police shot the suspects remains blocked off and a smashed SUV is still in the middle of the San Bernardino Avenue, the road there. Uh, forensics experts are examining the scene. So those are all the investigations that are ongoing. Uh, to politics, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both have an honesty problem. A new Quinnipiac poll results find that 60% of voters say that Clinton can't be trusted, and 59% feel the same about Trump. Ooh, see, Trump's closing in on her. He's closing in on her. But that hasn't stopped them from both leading their respective party primary races for months. The, uh, at the Washington Times, Braun York posts that uh, this discrepancy can be explained by the 2016 voter valuation of perceived strength over perceived honesty, as the poll also sees two frontrunners leading each pack in ratings of strong leadership qualities. Among the other candidates for whom these questions were asked, Bernie Sanders gets the best honesty grade at 59 percent, saying he's trustworthy. Ben Carson at 53 percent was the only other contender in the top 50 percent. Wow. There's politics. Republican uh, presidential frontrunner Donald Trump has finally agreed to disclose his medical history. On Twitter, he boasted that, how would he boast about his health? I am the healthiest human ever known 
to man. Says his health was perfect. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Hillary. Hillary Campaign staffers have been under fire for the real estate mogul's refusal to release the records, as is customary for White House aspirants. Trump has previously admitted to a poor diet, heavy on steak and bacon, fitful sleeps of only a few hours a night, and a lack of regular exercise. Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie have all issued their own records in recent recent months. If elected next November, Trump at 70 would be the oldest person to ascend to the presidency. Ronald Reagan was 69. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So that's why people are a little concerned. You're eating steak and bacon. You're 70. You going to get in the White House and have a heart attack? No, he would assure us that he is the healthiest president. But he says his health is perfect. Perfect. Perfect meaning without flaw. Perfect. Interesting stuff. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Arlene Pelicane will be joining us. Uh, she has a great website, ArlenePelicane.com. She's going to be talking to us about, you know, growing up social. So all these kids have grown up on social media with all this technology. So what should we be getting them for Christmas? Interesting stuff. Should we be out there buying the cell phones, the cameras, the tablets, the other electronics? Or where should we direct our attention and our dollars during Christmas if we wanted healthier children, stick with us, folks. Interesting topic. Come up, we're coming right back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. You know what? I appreciate Ben singing this for us. Uh, he he didn't have to, but and he put himself out there. He made himself vulnerable. So thank you, Ben. We're gonna now shoot it down. Oh no, we're gonna go uh, talk to our guest, our Arlene Pelicane. She is um, the author of the book "Growing Up Social." We've had her on the show before. She wrote the book. If you remember, co-authored it with uh, Dr. Gary Chapman, uh, who wrote the book um, "The Five Love Languages," and she's. She's here to uh, talk to us about this this Christmas time, right? One of the big stresses is we got to figure out what to get the kids for Christmas. And what's natural for us is just to jump to all the technology, right? Get them a camera, a cell phone, a tablet. But uh, we asked Arlene Pelican to join us because that may not really be what our kids need. They actually may be begging for something else from Christmas uh, from us as parents that we may not even be thinking about. Arlene Pelican, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Great to have you back. Hey, what do you think? Uh, what is, there's a lot of pressure right now for parents to, to get the right gift, right, to find the, to find the device. And a lot of times it's technology that, that the kids want. Is that, is that where we should be going? What would you say as somebody who has studied, you know, the impact of technology on kids, yeah. where, where should we be going as parents? I think the first thing we can do as parents is say, okay, whatever my child is asking for, I'm not just going to give it to them because they're asking me so often. You know, so if you've got a kid that every time you're in the store, it's like, this one, mom, get this one, and it's the new video game, right. some kind of gaming device or something, you know, electronic, and they're constantly asking you. They're asking you at home. They're telling you, mom, so-and-so's got one. Mom, everyone's got a cell phone. I'm the only one without one. Like, if you've got that going on, it's almost reason to say, well, you have been nagging me about that so much that you will not be getting one <laughs> yeah, this Christmas. Because exactly. we tend to give in that we think, my goodness, just let's stop this onslaught. And so we're making the decision based on, I don't want to be bothered by this anymore. Mm, yeah, they and wear so, us down. 
Yeah, so I think that is not the place you want to make the decision, and it's more the kind of thing you want to ask yourself, if I get my child this game, if I get my child this phone, uh, this tablet, how is that going to play out in their life? And really take a moment to talk to your spouse, talk to even people who have given those items to their children, and find out, you know, like, how's that, what what dynamic changed in the house? Because I think that's really important to fast forward the tape. We gave my son just a little digital camera. So all it is is a camera and that's yeah. it. And we gave that to him. I think it was fourth or fifth grade. He had asked for one. And one thing that we noticed was all of a sudden he stopped being present at things. He uh-huh. was like taking pictures of everything. Right. <laughs> like, what happened to him? And and thankfully, you know, because at first we were like, oh, man, should we not have given that to him? And it actually broke. And then we were kind of relieved, like, good. <laughs> it broke. We got it easy out there. But it's this whole idea of asking yourself, how is this going to play out with yeah. my child? What kind of message am I sending my child if I give them this device? Hey, Arlene, we know that the, the camera didn't break itself. Yeah. You, you <laughs> broke it at night, didn't you? Yeah. I stepped on it. We, we did, you know, yeah, you threw it on the floor. We did the exact same thing, and it does. It, it steals away their presence. And then, but what was interesting with the one son, we've only given one child, I think, a video camera like that, but he's the one that actually became really big and, and, and loves videography. Yes. So, so it could help, except yeah. it's more complicated than that, right? These, these things, like, you may not have thought you'd lose his presence. Uh, and attention just by giving them a gift. And so we, we almost need to, like you say, run it down the run it down to the end of the row. Let the water run all the way down in our mind before we buy it. That's exactly right, because that's where you're going to win that. And, and the thing is, there are those positive uses, like you're saying. There's going to be some kid that plays video games in a controlled manner, so, you know, not like right. hours and hours every day, and they're going to turn up to be this brilliant engineer who's going to say, <laughs> it was all that video game play. And there, there will be that kid yeah. that that'll do that for them. But for every one of him, who knows? Right. There might be 100 kids who are like, exactly. I can't read and finish this test because no, exactly. I've been playing video games all my life. Yeah, I, I love the idea, too, that you're just you're just saying... Think. I mean, a lot yeah. of us get reactive because, you know, it's five days before Christmas and they're right. running out of iPads. I better hurry. And, and we just. Sale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We know a little girl and she grew up uh, in this, you know, idyllic cul-de-sac with my cousin where the girl still scootered around and played bikes and did jump rope. And you did all that stuff during elementary school. And then about third grade, she got an iPad. And the year she got an iPad, her life totally turned on a dime because she stopped coming outside. Mm. And the girls would come out, and she'd say, no, I don't feel like it. And really what she was saying, of course, is I prefer playing these video games. And her mom said, I, I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. She's just addicted to this video game, and it's totally changed the dynamic of her health. She's you know, gotten a little bit, yeah. a, a little bit more some of weight. her yeah. since that has happened, and she's lost those relationships in the cul-de-sac. And just that normal play that is so important. Mm. And yet in that situation, the mother feels helpless. And I think that's something for all of us parents to realize we're not helpless that we can say, I'm either not going to buy that because I don't think that's good for you, I don't think my child can handle that or have the self-control, or even after we've bought it, to recognize, I made a mistake, yeah. you know, and come to your daughter and say, you know what, I thought this would be great, but I see that, that you're not playing with your friends anymore, and we're just going to take this thing out on Saturday. Oh, you know, go outside and right. go to cul-de-sac. You can, you can backtrack from these Well, I, that's such great advice because, too, how many times you're setting the precedent, so... Yeah. Because now every child's like, well, Tanner got one when he was 12. 
so now everyone's fighting that it has to be the same, and yet none of our children are exactly the same. Yeah. Man. I saw, I saw this recent research that said that the teenagers in the U.S. are spending an average of one hour and 13 minutes playing video games, and they're doing that three to four days a week, so it's about four to five hours per week. Wow. So in some ways, that's a ton, and then in other ways, it might not be as much as we think. So when your kid says, my friend gets to play one hour every day, you know, or two hours every day, or five hours on the weekend, you can say, well, you know, the research is just showing you know, four to five hours a week. And I know for a lot of us, my, my children don't play video games. But they're, uh, you, you know, all I'm saying is use your use moderation and, and let your children know, no, not everyone is doing this, you know. And, right. And pray that you find other families close by that are like you. You can say, like so-and-so, let's go hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and that, that might be it. Uh, don't, do you ever, like, look at other parents and think, what are you doing? Why do you... <laughs> Why are you – because my kids will come say, well, Johnny's parents let him be on his iPad forever. And I'm thinking – and then I meet him like at a game and and in my head I'm I'm thinking, you are a horrible parent. (laughs) You – if if you talk to them half the time, again, they don't know. Parent, we're just not involved enough it doesn't seem like. Yeah, and I think it's super important for the young kids. Like your elementary school child does not need an iPhone. You know, you've got these third, fourth, fifth oh. graders walking oh. around with phones in their hands, right. and your elementary school child does not need a phone. Man, it's um, we we made the mistake of we got rid of our home phone. Yeah, and what we didn't realize though is that we we have a a ten year old and a twelve year old left. Um, well, we have a lot of kids, but yeah. but in the end, we ended up leaving them without a way of contacting us or us contacting them. Right. So then it's like, well, you, we probably ought to just get you a phone. I mean, that's what my kids said. You probably ought to just get us a phone, mom, dad. Yeah. And then you're thinking, oh, okay. Yeah, now here we go again. I know. And, and you yeah. fall into the trap. Um, I really want to get into uh, the other side of this. And you wrote a wonderful um, article that says your child probably doesn't need that. Mm. Um, let's do this, though. Let's take a break and come back. You, you, you identify three things that your kids really do need from parents for Christmas. And I'd love you to teach us what those three things are. Because uh, it seems like in the end, mm, they're going to be a lot more valuable than any iPad or cell phone. And, and they probably will actually help you eliminate other problems. So we'll have more with Arlene Pelican. If you go to her website, ArlenePelican.com, you can get all the information. Great blog, great insight. Uh, she also has uh, interviews and books and all of these other things on the site. Wonderful resources as a parent. We'll take a break. Coming back more with Arlene Pelican right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we're speaking with Arlene Pelican from the website ArlenePelican.com. She's also the author of the book Growing Up Social, uh, which is a wonderful book she co-authored with Gary Chapman. Uh, but you know what? She also has some other wonderful books, 31 Days to a Happy Husband, 31 Days to Becoming a Happy Wife, a Happy, I think, Mother is another one of them. Just a wonderful resource. Arlene, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, talk to me about this article you wrote. Your child probably doesn't need that. And um, in, in the article, you talk about Christmas gifts that uh, they're not the toys, but that your child does need from their parents. Yeah. And you, you identify three things. Just run through those. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so. What what really are the things that our children need from us? And this is going to be fun for your listeners. My Wi-Fi is down, and I can't get that article. So can you? Oh, no, you let me help you. Let me cue you. No, I'll cue you in on it. Yeah. One is wisdom. Okay, so... When your child, you know, they're looking, there's not wisdom in these apps. You know, you think that, oh, if they have this app, they'll learn something, they'll be smarter. And yet, without the wisdom to understand how do I use this app, how do I use this social media platform, how do I communicate with my friends, and what are appropriate texts, and what aren't appropriate texts, and how do I use this Snapchat thing responsibly, all these kinds of things, they they come from the source of wisdom to be able to understand this is what works in life, and this is not what works in life, and what is God's perspective on this. And I think that what parents need to do is pass along those values of wisdom. You know, you can learn things two ways. You can learn things by doing them, like, mm-hmm. wow, that was a big mistake. I guess I should do my homework because yeah. that was terrible. Right. Or you can learn because your parents have told you, you know, you should probably show up with your homework done every day. And that way you'll get to go to recess and do all sorts of other things. So true. So the more we can instill wisdom in our children to say, hey, you know what, I've been down this road before, and this is really a good way to use this, then I think, you know, uh, the the school of hard knocks won't be quite as painful, you know, as other things. So that wisdom is so important, and it will help your child for life. And again, many times the screens... They're kind of the opposite. You know, you look at a child's cartoon or you look at what the family, how the family is portrayed or different things. And you think that's not exactly what our family believes. Right. Isn't that true? I mean, that really is the distinct role of the parent. Yeah. I mean, we can learn everything else on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> but, you can learn how to fix stuff. Right. But the wisdom really, yeah, especially the, especially the applied wisdom of our value system, like yeah. you're saying, that needs to come from the parent. That's exactly right. That's great stuff. Uh, another one that uh, another thing our kids need is is our restraint. Yeah, because you know, if kids, what would kids like to do all day? They'd love to watch TV in their pajamas all day, eating Cheetos and ice cream and soda pop. Yeah, did that last week. <laughs> like, That's yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so it's like this is fantastic. Yeah, and and as a parent, you know, once in a while on vacation and different things. That is fantastic, but it makes it fantastic because it's special and it's not normal. And it's not what you always do. And so, of course, our children need us to be the ones that say, we will be the gatekeeper for you because on your own, you're not going to realize that, okay, for me to play this game that is a, a mature game where I'm 10 years old and I'm playing this mature video game, I should not be there. Uh, your parent will be the person that has that restraint. And too many parents, I think, today are so afraid of they don't want to hurt their child's feelings or they don't want to upset their children because they want to be their friend. And I think we as parents have to realize they've got friends Mm. and they've got one mom and they've got one dad. And if you are the meanie and you say, I'm sorry, you're 10 years old and you cannot play that video game that's for 17 and up, that's good. They need your restraint because without it, they're going to find themselves in a place they they should not be. Oh, so so true. 
So be okay with being the parent and show that restraint. Because your child, you know, and I always joke with, I speak to mothers of preschoolers a lot, and I'll joke that, you know, your four-year-old isn't going to say, oh, thanks, Mom, for turning off the TV. Right. You know I've had enough. Or thanks, Mom, for taking away my iPad. I really appreciate that. That's going to really help my, <laughs> my concentration later in life. You know, no kid is going to thank you. So you've got to do this restraint thing without the gratitude right now of your children. But I do promise you when your kids grow up, and I bet you've seen this, Matt, that they will thank you that oh, hey, yeah. you raised a little different with those restraints because kids yeah. need those guardrails. Well, and I even have my daughter that's like telling – my oldest child is telling me, you, you're, not as, you're not as tough on the younger kids as you were with, uh, with me. You need to be tougher with those younger ones. <laughs> I'm like, you know it. So so they do, because if we're not providing kind of the boundaries and the restraint, then we are being led by our children and they don't they don't have the depth or the ability to be leading. And they're leading by their what their peers are doing or right. by what the commercials are telling them that they need or should be like. That's right. The, the last thing in your article that you mentioned that we need to be sure we're giving our children is is our presence yeah. with uh, not with a T. But our, we, our attention, our focus, our, our being present with them. Yeah, I was in the store just yesterday, and there was a mother with maybe a 9-year-old, and she had you know, her little earpiece on her phone, and she was very stressed, and she was talking to her friend, and they're making plans and doing all this. But I noticed that most of the time I was shopping, she was on the phone like that, and her daughter was just kind of like following her around the store. And I understand that we've got to be in touch with friends and we've got to do details, but wouldn't it have been better if that mom would have just thought, okay, let me finish this conversation. You know, I need to be there at 10 and just get the information out there and then hang up and then spend that time looking at your daughter. And I think so many of us are living our lives this way, that all these snatches of time, walking from the car to the parking lot, walking from school to home, walking into the restaurant, instead of looking our children in the eyes, holding their hands, if they're you know younger and even if you're older ones will let you hold their hand, and, and being close to them, physically present, looking at them in the eye, letting them know I'm here for you, I'm listening to you, and not that, oh my goodness, my mom, my dad, they were always checking emails, they were always on the phone, always because it lets them know, hey, I'm less important than whoever's on that phone. Mm. And none of us would say, oh, yeah, the, the person, the cable guy on the phone is more important than my child. But what we've done is we've just we've we've thought that's so urgent. I have to take care of that. And we've left this quality time with our children undone. So put away your phones at mealtimes. Put away your phones when you're walking to school and be there with your child. Look at them. Talk with them. Wow. I mean, it's such an important thing, and yet we get sucked in, don't we? It's so easy for us to just not pay attention. Yeah. And even those just seconds, you know, like when your child comes into your car, if you just look at their face for three, four, five seconds, you know, and really look at them and talk to them, how was your day? Did you have a great day? I mean, those just those few seconds make such a difference because they see like, oh, you see me, you hear me. Yeah with your spouse so that when you, you know, enter the house, it's like, eh, you know, <laughs> right. front and everyone's still staring down at their computer, but that there's eye contact and there's hugs and there's that physical presence that a child really needs. It, I guess it's just in our minds, it's easier to just supposedly buy the trip, buy the content, buy the tools, buy the technology, just throw money at it, maybe sit at their games, but that's not the same as connecting. Yeah, it's not the quality time. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in in, uh, his book Outliers talks about what makes someone great is 10,000 hours. You know, 10,000 hours 
practice, et cetera. And for our children, they need 10,000 hours of people time, people skill time. Like, oh, this is how you have an argument healthy, in a healthy way. This is how you disagree. This is how you show love. This is how you apologize. This is how you give thanks. And they need that 10,000 hours before they graduate, you know, into life. Right. And many of our kids are spending instead seven hours a day on a screen and that's not teaching them the human people skills that they need. So we've oh. really got to realize when we buy this device at Christmas, when we give this device, how, what's this going to do to their people skills? And we don't want, like, the cover of our book, Growing Up Social, for Dr. Chapman and I, on the cover are these two little kids, and they're both dressed up, and they're looking down at their phones, and they're having a candlelight dinner with tablecloth, and they're not looking at each other. <laughs> and we don't want our kids to grow up someday, you know, as a 28-year-old and text his girlfriend, want to marry me, you know, and right. send back like, sure, you know, we don't want our children to communicate that way. And so it's important when before we buy them a device that we ask ourselves, how will this impact the way they communicate? That's such great. And, 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 and where are they going to get their wisdom, their restraint and, and your attention? Yes. Because this will immediately steal all of those. It'll, it'll steal the wisdom, it'll steal the restraint, and it will take away uh, your presence if you're not yeah. careful. Good yeah. stuff. Well, we appreciate you again, Arlene. Uh, keep up the great work. Go to the website, ArlenePelican.com. Such a wonderful resource uh, for everything, parenting advice and also just relationship advice. Um, she really makes it so easy, very basic to understand the basics of healthy relating. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on in their world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is how cool I... Oh, this this music is the music I played yesterday after Spencer dropped off something for me. Uh, we're going to shoot it down to our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. One, thank you for playing cake. And is this a reward for me dropping off a beanie to yes. you? Yes. So when you, when you dropped off the beanie, I was on a call, and I couldn't get off the phone. But I, you didn't know this, but then I put on the beanie, and then I walked around the, 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 the radio offices playing this music, playing cake. Cake is where We're it's driving. at, man. I was so... Plotting for... Ooh, he, <laughs> he still, still burns. burns. He's going this... the distance. Man. This is right in our wheelhouse. This is amazing, because I didn't even know this was music. Oh, my goodness. But when I put the beanie on, and I showed my hip young kids... They said all they could say was no, no, Dad. Don't, Dad. <laughs> no. Stop it. And I'm like, no. I'm going to go to the game tonight. There was a game in, at our high school. I'm going to wear the beanie to the game tonight. And they said you look like Charlie Brown with a swim cap on. Wow, but, they made that comparison. Yeah, they were kind of rude. But why Charlie Brown of all people? I have no idea. I think the big head. <laughs> I think the big head. Are you always dragging a blankie around? Uh, yeah, Linus. Is that Linus? Linus. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I so appreciate the. I, I appreciate you thinking about me. I, I love to see your excitement. You, Spencer was like, it was Christmas. You're welcome. You're incredible. Hey, we talked about Christmas presents yesterday, right? I know. Yeah. 
I delivered mine early. You you did. Oh, that's. Uh, I, and there might be more. Did you guys get your ki- wow. your kittens? Did you get your basket of kittens that I sent? Kittens? No, we did not. Oh no. What does Christopher Walken think of that? Kittens. <laughs> kittens. <laughs> that sounds like Bill kittens, Cosby. A box full of kittens. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. So no, but we left him, guys. We left him. We left him at the front door this morning. You didn't get him. No, you left them out in the cold. Well, they're kittens. Kittens. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey, um, did you guys did you guys hear about the BYU game last night? Were you, we did you, did you guys... were in Salt Lake City. Were you? We made the trek up to the Huntsman Center. Well, let's just say the Utes are good. The Utes Holy are a very cow. good team. Jacob or Jacob. Jakob Pertl. Jakob Pertl. is is a legit He's from Austria. Big guy. He's a really good player. He's going to be a lottery pick. I love meaning Jonathan, top 14. 15. Yeah. Jonathan easily. Tavernari, former BYU uh, basketball player who's now playing in in Europe and Italy said, "I thought he was just going to be a big dunce, but he's really good." No, he's incredibly skilled. And BYU had trouble there, but that was the only issue. The BYU defense did not play well in the first half. Dug themselves a hole. Mm-hmm. Down 24 at one point. 24 at one point, 23 at the half. And then the, they don't play in quarters, but the third quarter, the first 10 minutes, if you will, BYU outscores Utah 26 to 10. They're playing defense. Wow, Chase yeah. Fisher wakes up. He scores 26 in the second half, by the way. Uh, and BYU jumps back into that game. They get it down to seven oh. with 9.47 left. Kyle Collinsworth gets his fourth foul, and then it unravels from there. BYU oh. makes a late run. I think they go on a 14 1 run over a 139 span the last two minutes. So it gets down to six. At one point, but the game it, with ten seconds left or so. Yeah. J- Jeremy, it sounds like you actually you saw the game. Yeah, <laughs> we soaked it all in. It was that. That's the. That's just a level of competition that'd be great to have BYU playing every week. BYU's got some issues right now. They can't put two halves together. Uh, they need to defend better. They more need more consistency from Chase Fisher. They need more scoring off the bench or scoring at all. Um, so they've got some issues. This team's really talented, and that was just game six. And game two on the road for BYU. And Utah's a good team. They'll be a single-digit seed in the NCAA tournament. Oh, they're going to be ranked next week again. They were in the Sweet 16 last yeah. year. So that was a big challenge. I, I didn't think BYU would go up there and win. I thought they would compete and possibly win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't think they'd dig themselves a 24-point hole. That was really the issue was too big of a, a – too poor a start to – to dig themselves out of because they played fantastic uh-huh. uh, to start the second half. I, I, they, can, they can build on that. I didn't see, but uh, somewhere in there, there was an intentional foul, a technical, and the guy, the kid, the BYU. Flagrant two. Flagrant yeah, so, two. So, he, so Nick Emery yeah. uh, essentially threw a punch. Yeah, I let the um, emotions get the best of him, and, and we knew he was a fiery guy coming in. Mm-hmm. Like, this is this is nothing new. You just... His older brother Jackson said he just needs to learn how to channel it in different ways. That's, but he, he is, it was pretty cool because he just ran right off. Isn't that what uh, he did? He, no, he stayed for the moment. Oh, he did. Oh, it I was thought, then I, reviewed, oh, and then he then he then just he, ran right out. They said, "Go ahead." So that actually became his fifth foul. Okay, and so he fouled out. Yeah, gone. But you're not the flagrant two. You're ejected as well. Yeah, and then you got to hit the locker room all by yourself. It's lonely. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, play a soundbite uh, coming up on the show from Dave Rose. His thoughts on that play, and if he thinks that that means more than just that game lost for Nick Emery. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are potential future games that he could miss, depending on how the conference rules. Ooh. So there's the answer. I was teasing it, but Spencer just told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say how much or what. But yeah. they, you'll you'll have more depth. You'll yes. have more color yeah. added to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So certainly a big story today. Tom Homel will join us as well. BYU was invited to the Las Vegas Bowl officially football yes. team. Yes. Uh, That's so Viva Las that. Vegas. That's right. Hey, BYU's Tom Homo, by the way, I read an article about him. Do I don't know that everybody knows what an incredible history that guy has. Four-time Super Bowl champ, three-player. Yeah. Are you kidding one me? A coach. I know. He's a winner. Oh, absolutely. He. Uh, I'm. I mean, uh, I'll be honest. I'm trying to get a sense of who would be uh, more qualified or credible to be BYU's athletic director. I mean, who's more connected I, than I, Tom Homo? I, like, I mean, you can get. You could get a bigger name uh, he, in terms of. Oh, this guy did this in the NFL. Tom played in the NFL and won. Super Bowls and coached with some of the great greatest coaches. Yes, he he's, knows he's a former everybody. coach. He's connected. It's yeah. he's he's doing a fantastic. Honestly, job. I have and, underestimated him. And I read that article and I thought, holy cow! And you think about the challenges, some of which are self-imposed. Yeah. Uh, from BYU of what you try and do and compete at the highest level and do it uh, a different way and try and be seen for a national fan base. It's a unique challenge. So uh, Tom Holm will be in studio. He'll oh, man. Former uh, longtime Major League Baseball uh, pitcher, former Cougar, five-time All-Star World Series MVP, Jack Morris. Oh, yeah, there's that guy on the show, too. Holy cow, you're loading it. You're loading uh, the show. And then Jason Franchuk. He used to work for the Daily Herald, the newspaper in yeah. Utah. He's now out in New York. He was at the Westchester Knicks game covering Jimmer Fredette yesterday. We'll talk to him about that performance from Jimmer. He's our Jimmer correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, can you, uh, is there a special, um, can, can you guys say Jimmer with any more excitement? No. Jimmer! Did wow. you hear that, Matt? Holy cow, yeah. Yeah. That was great echo. That's not us. That's our producer, Ben Bagley. I know, he but the how did, of all voices. but how did he get his voice on? Uh, Birth. <laughs> the final frontier. <laughs> ben is in everybody's head. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, guys, that's going to be a great show. We're looking forward we to it. Star-studded. Thanks for the beanie, and uh, and thanks for introducing me to cake. No problem. The music, not the wonderful food. He's going the distance. <laughs> He's going for speed. She's all alone. All alone. In a time of need. <laughs> oh, my heavens. We can do that whole song. Okay, you know what? We can do the whole song. Uh, I'm going karaoke. Gonna... <laughs> BYUB karaoke tonight at the Christmas party. Oh, are you going tonight, We're by there. the way? Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll, yeah, we'll be there. We'll see you. I'll, I'll, right. I'll save you a table. Ain't no karaoke in the Hinkley building, I'll tell you I that. I know, that's for sure. See you, kids. Have fun. <laughs> crazy. Oh, that is crazy. Were the, ben, were those songs that they were singing, were those the lyrics from a song? A rapper-type cake song? That was the exact same song I played. Huh, it's funny. I couldn't understand the words. Yeah. I think it's my hearing. Or your your seniority. Pardon? Don't know what you mean by that. <sighs> Austrian Christmas tree. No, Australian Christmas tree sets a record with 518,838 lights. Man. They set, uh, an Australian set his third Christmas-themed world record in as many years Friday by illuminating a tree in downtown Canberra with 519,000 lights about. Man. Guinness World of World Records confirmed that David Richards had broken the record for the most lights on the artificial Christmas tree that had been held for five years by Universal Studios Japan. The tree, uh, after being fully lit, when once the lights were all on, eventually or immediately began to melt into a plastic heap of tree bark. Plastic tree bark, of course. Um, that's amazing. 
It was a 72-foot-tall steel tree. Had to be made of metal, right? So it, it didn't melt. But um, you know what I would do? I know if, if I had done that and I, I'd get it all set up, it would be all ready. We'd flip the switch and half the lights would turn on. And then I'd have to climb up and I'd replace the bulb and the other half would go on. And then I'd get down and put the ladder away and the bottom half would turn off. And I would do that for about 28 days. And then I'd give up, take the tree down. And I wouldn't think about it again. Mm, that's cool. Congratulations. Uh, another world record. Today, by the way, is also National Roof Over Your Head Day. So just be grateful you've got a roof over your head. And um, let's end with our, our hero story. As you know, we always like to end the show on a positive note. How better to do that than to look at the heroes of the world? Uh, today's hero are thousands of people around the world. Here's basically the story. Ten-year-old Aaron Anderson is the only pupil at his school. The only child on the whole island of Outscaries, never heard of it, hundreds of miles off the north coast of Scotland. The entire island has a total of about 70 people. Uh, He is taught in a two-room schoolhouse, has one teacher. Being the only student is pretty uh, pricey, too, they say. One year of Aaron's exclusive schooling cost the local council about 75,000 pounds a year which is roughly 112,000 US dollars. In the wake of his story being shared by news outlets across the UK, a campaign has started on Reddit to, to share Christmas wishes with the young boy. The aim is to get as many people as possible to send Aaron a Christmas card, showing him that even though he may not have any friends on the island, there are still plenty of people around the world who would love to talk to him. The Reddit moderator who started the event says he's notified Aaron's school The campaign is gaining traction and has even spread to the United States. If you want to send a Christmas card to Aaron, you can write a short message and where you're from and send it to Mr. Aaron Anderson, A-R-O-N Anderson, care of Scaries School, S-K-E-R-R-I-E-S, school in Scaries, Shetland. His uh, postal code is Z-E-2-1-9-A-S. So to all of you that are taking care of one poor little lonely schoolboy in Scotland, a salute to you. Again, the goodness of America, the goodness of the world, really. And uh, we need more of it, don't we? It's a, it's a cold world if we're not uh, looking out for each other and taking care of each other's backs. That's the reason we do the show, to give you the ideas, the hope, to hopefully help you see the good in the world. We can't do it without you. We'll be back again tomorrow. For three more hours of ideas and tools to help you live longer, love stronger. Until tomorrow, folks, take care of each other. Keep, uh, you know, keep the prayers, your prayers uh, headed towards San Bernardino. And uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. Talk to you then.